1: Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 124th edition of the program. Today is December 21st, and this is our end-of-the-year extravaganza, where this episode is like 10 hours long. I don't know what the final time is at this point, but you can see by looking at the <laughs> at the play button and right next to that, you see how long this video is. It's got to be above two hours, maybe even three hours. So this is the end-of-the-year episode where we do the recap, we get into some interviews, and also we just... Talk a lot about politics. This is the last show of the year. So welcome. But before we get into all of that, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors. So this week we have Allison Swanson, Bye Dumbbia, Chris Fuentes, Christopher Lyles, Dax McCoy, Eric Fry, Garrett Luttrell, Jennifer Panic, John Mandeville, Joseph Figueroa Rivera, Kim Hightower, Louis Morelos, Padriac O. Loingsai, S. C. Nelson, Tim J. Sawyer, Troop Doe, Walton Morgan, and Waiting to Fade. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the program, you could visit humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on today's gigantic episode... First, we'll talk about the aftermath of the FCC's vote to repeal net neutrality, including the lawsuit 17 states filed against the FCC, we'll talk about how the FCC's repeal is actually worse than we thought, why Ajit Pai thinks he's already been proven right, his criticism of net neutrality's proponents, the FCC's refusal to assist the New York Attorney General's office in their investigation into comment fraud, Luke Skywalker's response to Ajit Pai's stupidity, the fight for public broadband, and of course cable news's atrocious coverage of net neutrality. Also, in this episode, we'll talk about Doug Jones and how he's already poised to betray the very voters that helped him get elected and when it comes to republicans they're on the cusp of passing their tax reform bill and next year they're taking aim at social safety net programs and when it comes to interviews i'll talk with numiki const about the dnc unity reform commission and comedian jimmy dore about corporate democrats and finally in this episode we'll get to our end of the year award ceremony and finish off the show With a recap of this crazy ass year. So, all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. We have zero time to waste. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Enjoy the show. So, even though the FCC already voted to repeal Title II net neutrality protections, the fight to save net neutrality is far from over, actually, because immediately after the FCC made this vote, New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman announced that he would be suing the FCC.
0: Hi, I'm New York State Attorney General Eric Schneiderman. As we speak, the FCC has just voted to gut net neutrality. Today's vote is an early Christmas gift to big telecom companies. New Yorkers deserve a free and open internet, and that's why my office will sue to stop the FCC's illegal rollback of net neutrality. We'll be filing a claim to preserve protections for New Yorkers and all Americans, and will be working aggressively to stop the FCC's leadership from doing any further damage to the Internet and our economy.
1: Now, since Eric Schneiderman made this announcement, 16 other states have already signed onto his lawsuit, including California, Oregon, Vermont, Washington, Delaware, Hawaii, Iowa, Illinois, Massachusetts, Kentucky, Maine, Maryland, North Carolina, Mississippi, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. And that's just one of multiple ways that we're fighting the FCC here because you can also put pressure on Congress to overturn the FCC's decision since there is a law known as the Congressional Review Act which allows Congress to invalidate regulatory changes made by government agencies. And as Evan Greer explains in an op-ed for Huff Post, the CRA lets elected officials in Congress overrule actions taken by federal agencies like the FCC, and it's different from a normal bill because it only requires a simple majority in the Senate and House to pass. Now, the only problem with the Congressional Review Act is that Congress only has 60 days to act. So, if they're going to get this done, if we're going to use the CRA to save net neutrality, then we've got to act quickly and we've got to put a lot of pressure on our elected officials. However, the good news is that the Senate is already planning to vote on this. So according to John Brodkin of Ars Technica, U.S. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said he will force a vote on a bill that would reinstate the Federal Communications Commission's net neutrality rules. Legislation to reverse the repeal doesn't need the support of the Majority Leader, Schumer said during a press conference Friday, according to The Hill. We can bring it to the Floor and force a vote. So there will be a vote to repeal the rule that the FCC passed. Now, realistically speaking, even if the Senate is able to muster up enough votes to pass this, well, the chances of it passing in the House are slim to none. So I think that the best way we can possibly save net neutrality is pursuing this through the courts. However, That doesn't mean that we shouldn't at least try to save net neutrality, so we should still be calling our senators, we should still call our representatives and let them know that we want them to use the Congressional Review Act to nullify what the FCC just did. However, in the process of trying to save net neutrality and pursuing a congressional solution, we do have to be... Cognizant that there are fake friends out there that are pretending to support net neutrality when actually what they're proposing is pretty harmful.
2: Justice Promise. We have a bill, the Open Internet Preservation Act. Uh, we can do this now that Chairman Pai has successfully done his job of getting the net neutrality rules off the books. And uh, we are back to Title I for an internet service. And yes, to preserve a free and open internet. No blocking, no throttling. Disclose all of the rules. And this is, uh, we're doing it right now. We're getting ready to drop this bill. It is my honor to sign this bill.
1: Now, as Fight for the Future explains, what Marsha Blackburn is proposing here is a net neutrality in name only bill. And this bill doesn't do what she wants us to think it will do. So by getting us to call Congress and ask them to sign this bill, we'll be doing her dirty work for her. And we have a reason to not trust Marsha Blackburn because she did take $600,000 from the telecom industry. She also voted against our online privacy earlier this year and brazenly so, so, if you are going to call Congress, make sure that you specifically tell them that you want them to utilize the powers granted to them in the Congressional Review Act to nullify this law you don 't support marsha blackburn 's phony bill. you support them stopping the FCC through the congressional review act it 's very important. I think, to make that distinction. Now, there are other ways to save net neutrality permanently, and that means that as citizens, it's our responsibility to show up to city council meetings across the country and push for public broadband. It's one way to ensure that we always have net neutrality, because if we're not relying on these large multi-billion dollar companies like Comcast and Verizon and AT&T, and we have our own public option, then that means... We don't have to worry about it anymore because our own municipality-run internet, they're not going to do what Comcast and Verizon wants to do because it's owned by the citizens. And it's also cheaper. It forces other internet service providers in your area to compete. So here's the thing that I want you all to take away. Even though the situation seems grim, and it is, we do have to realize that the fight is far from over. And um, to the chagrin of Ajit Pai, we're never going to back down. We will continue this fight and we will make sure that we undo the damage that this vote caused. FCC Chairman Ajit Pai has repeatedly insisted that his political opponents, people in favor of net neutrality, have resorted to being hyperbolic when it comes to the discussion surrounding net neutrality. In fact, this is what he had to say about our legitimate concerns about his repeal plan.
3: Those on the other side have literally nothing other to peddle than hysteria and misinformation and fear uh, about the light touch approach that we had for most of the internet's existence. So I would hope hope that people would focus on the facts, but again, given what's uh, transpired over the last several weeks i'm not surprised at all so much of this hysteria is simply misplaced as we will see going forward getting this uh, regulatory system right means better faster cheaper internet access for all americans across the country
1: so that's what he thinks about you that's what he thinks about our desire to protect net neutrality and believe it or not he's already smugly declaring that his repeal plan is proving him right because the very next day after they voted to repeal net neutrality large internet service providers didn't already start throttling content uh, those who have said that the internet as we know it is about to end have been proven
3: wrong starting this morning as people send emails check on their twitter accounts post on facebook and the like we have a free and up internet going forward and the fcc and the ftc going forward are going to make sure that happens
1: so i don't think i've ever seen anyone be so smug and so wrong at the same time so he says those who've said that the internet as we know it is about to end have already been proven wrong starting this morning. So, the logic here is that since they just voted to repeal net neutrality and Verizon and Comcast haven't already rolled out tiered internet plans the very next day, it must mean that all of the commotion over net neutrality was misplaced, thus proving Ajit Pai right. However, there's a couple of problems with this assertion. Not only is it idiotic, but it's also wrong. Because, as Ajit Pai knows, being the head of the FCC, once you vote on regulatory changes, they don't take effect immediately. In fact, his a colleague, Minion Clyburn, explained that these changes take a couple of months to go into effect.
4: In a couple of months when all of these rules go into effect, because it's going to take a few months for all of them to go into effect. So maybe it's the case that Ajit Pai was just unaware of the fact that once you vote on new
1: regulatory changes, they take a couple of months to go into effect. But if that's the case, if he literally didn't know about this when he's the chair of the FCC, then he should be fired because he doesn't know how his own agency operates. But I'm willing to bet that Ajit Pai knows these rules don't literally take effect the very next day and that as usual, he's lying to us. Again. Now, even when these rules do take effect, some companies like Comcast still won't be able to start throttling immediately. In fact, Comcast is actually prohibited from throttling until September of 2018 because of previous agreements that they've signed. And if you seriously think that these companies are dumb enough to roll out sweeping changes immediately when the public is still engaged and paying attention to the issue of net neutrality, then Ajit Pai is even more naive than I previously thought. But this is the head of the FCC. A major governmental agency. So if he says something that ignorant. He's not misinformed. He's just lying to you. But for those of us who are still concerned about net neutrality and freedom on the Internet, well, he's telling us that we really shouldn't be worried about freedom on the Internet because there's still going to be one agency that will be policing the Internet,
3: the FTC. As I said, the FCC and the Federal Trade Commission are going to continue to be cops on the beat. So if there's any company, Mm -hmm. uh, any internet service provider that acts in any competitive way, We will take action accordingly.
1: Now he's being incredibly dishonest here because what he's not telling you is that the FTC is only able to take action in the event an internet service provider is not transparent about their anti-competitive, anti-consumer conduct. So in the event... Comcast, for example, throttles a particular company. Well, there's nothing the FTC does so long as Comcast is upfront about what they're doing. Now, Minion Clyburn, who
4: is an FCC commissioner and colleague of Ajit Pai's, explains it way better than I can. And the FTC can only help you after a harm is done. So if you can prove that it's unfair or deceptive, then the FTC can protect you. But it's not deceptive if I've disclosed. And who knows what the definition of fair will be going forward. Mm -hmm. Now all you have to do is put it in a small print in paragraph 25 and you will be able to do what you want. You will be able to control my experiences you meaning the internet service provider, and I have to hope for the best. And there's no the agency best. that will um, that will stop it. So clearly, he's not being honest about the tremendous amount
1: of power he just gave to ISPs, which is why nobody believes him. And if you watch this full interview, you'll see that Steve Ducey, a Fox News host, is even presumably skeptical about what Ajit Pai is doing. And it seems like he smells bullshit too. Here's what I want to know. Is my internet going to slow down?
0: What I'm paying right now I'm okay with it, a little high, but is it going to slow down? (laughs) Will I be able to pay for more? What's the deal for me, the average consumer?
1: Well, Steve, the answer is yes. And if you really want to learn about what's to come with no net neutrality, you should probably stop listening to people that you work with because Fox News is notorious for their lies when it comes to this issue of net neutrality. Now, I've already provided you guys with countless examples on this channel about how Ajit Pai is lying through his teeth about everything However, this next clip that I'm going to show you might be the best example that demonstrates just how disingenuous and deceitful Ajit Pai really is. So take a look and I'll explain to you why what he's saying, even though it seems benign, is actually a huge lie. If we had stayed with net neutrality and there
3: had been, say, a President Hillary Clinton, where where could this have gone? What type of regulation could we see? They would have banned, for example, free data offerings by wireless companies where the wireless company will say you can stream data, music, video and the like exempt from any data limits. They would have banned that. They probably would have gotten into price regulation, which is essentially the government deciding Mm -hmm. how these businesses are going to operate.
1: Now, what he's saying here at face value, it seems reasonable, right? I mean, of course, we want Internet service providers and carriers to be able to offer unlimited data plans to their customers. Who wouldn't be in favor of that? But what he's not telling you is that these so-called unlimited data plans aren't what they seem because Verizon, for example, sells different tiers of unlimited data packages to customers where it actually throttles video content unless you pay more. Now, second of all, when companies like Verizon offer to exempt certain apps from data caps, they're advantaging their own products over other services. So in telling customers that their streaming service doesn't count towards their data cap, yet anytime a customer watches Netflix, that still does count towards their data cap, That's their way of trying to kill off their competitors under the guise of unlimited data. And that's bullshit. It's not really unlimited. Now, that's what the FCC was trying to stop. But Ajit Pai is saying that it's a bad thing, that they shouldn't stop Verizon from resorting to these types of disingenuous marketing tactics now also he states here about the government being able to dictate pricing and that's what the future fcc would have done under democratic leadership however he's implying that it's a bad thing that the government is able to stop these companies from ripping you off by imposing tears by offering internet to you Like television packages, that's somehow a bad thing according to Ajit Pai. Now, he's not saying this explicitly, but that's exactly what he means. But to say that Ajit Pai is lying is becoming so obvious that it's a term that's as evident as water is wet, for example. Anytime his mouth is open, he's usually lying because that's all he can do. Because since the overwhelming majority of the American people, including his own party, are against what he's doing, he has to lie in order to cultivate support for his plan. He has to pretend to be in favor of a free and open internet when we know that he's not in favor of a free and open internet. And he paints people who are in favor of a free and open internet as the enemies to a free and open internet. It's incredibly frustrating to me. Now, as you all know, I've previously talked about the fraud that was committed at the behest of internet service providers during the FCC's comment process for the repeal of net neutrality. And this is an important issue because... People's identities are being stolen from them, and this includes the identities of deceased individuals as well. For example, in a now viral tweet, Mackenzie Astin explains how on the day the FCC voted to repeal net neutrality, her mom would have turned 71 years old. But she didn't because she died in March of 2016. Now, in a question to Ajit Pai, McKenzie asks, can you please take the time to explain to me how she made three separate comments in support of ended net neutrality more than a year after she died? Now, of course, Ajit Pai had no response from Mackenzie, but it's not just Mackenzie who experienced fraud here. Because other people's identities were used to file anti-net neutrality comments with the FCC. And this doesn't just include normal people, this includes U.S. senators. So, Senator Jeff Merkley also spoke out saying, turns out someone impersonated me during the FCC net neutrality comment period for the proof of forged comments in this process. We need to get to the bottom of this and demand justice for those who sought to be heard. And as you can see here, even though Jeff Merkley supports net neutrality, his comment was obviously against net neutrality. Now, I've actually previously reported about how it's not just normal people, but it's also celebrities. And even President Obama had comments filed on his behalf under his name, that were against net neutrality. So under these circumstances, you'd think the FCC would do what they can to assist the New York Attorney General with his investigation into comment fraud. But the FCC, under the leadership of Ajit Pai, isn't just sitting out this investigation, but they're actively trying to block the New York Attorney General's office from investigating this. And because of this, we have reason to believe that Ajit Pai is trying to actively obstruct justice. So in a report that came out two days before the FCC voted to repeal net neutrality, Carl Bode of Vice Motherboard explains, the FCC is blocking a law enforcement investigation into fraudulent comments designed to provide bogus support for the agency's looming net neutrality repeal. New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman recently announced his office has been conducting an investigation into who's submitted millions of fraudulent comments, some using the identities of dead people during the public comment period. According to Schneiderman, his office made nine attempts over a period of five months to obtain server logs, API key details, or other information that could aid his office's investigation into the identity theft, but in a public letter to FCC boss Ajit Pai, Schneiderman noted that the agency simply refused to aid the investigation in any capacity whatsoever. Last week, the FCC doubled down on its refusal to cooperate in a more formal response to the AG. Now, the FCC's general counsel, Thomas Johnson, basically responded to the New York Attorney General's office by saying, well, we're not going to comply with you because one, those comments don't matter to us anyway. They have no bearing on the vote to repeal net neutrality. And two, to supply you with information would be too burdensome for us. He literally used the term too burdensome. But that's your job fraud occurred and you are now blocking one attorney general's office from investigating that fraud if people's identities were used aren't you worried about even further implications and what this could mean if their names were used then their addresses could be in a database their credit card information and social security numbers could be in a database so in order to prevent further fraud from occurring Aren't you concerned? Don't you want to comply with the New York Attorney General's office? Well, the FCC at this point has said no, and they've given the New York Attorney General's office the middle finger. They don't want the New York Attorney General snooping around in the FCC, and this begs the question, what do they have to hide? I mean, they already got what they wanted. They already voted to repeal net neutrality, so they have nothing to lose in complying with the Attorney General and giving him the information he needs to complete his investigation. Either... They don't want the New York Attorney General to conduct this investigation because they're worried that it could um, delegitimize their vote. Well, that doesn't seem like a plausible option because too late. This vote is already illegitimate and we are doing everything we can to stop it. And another possibility could just be that people within the FCC, like Ajit Pai, are personally culpable. So if the New York Attorney General's office actually does investigate this and find out that Ajit Pai or Michael Reilly are involved, or if they're covering for a company or individual within the FCC, then they could be personally responsible. Now look, obviously I'm jumping to conclusions without evidence and just speculating here, but Ajit Pai can automatically shut down any talks of him potentially obstructing justice. And he could do that by helping Eric Schneiderman with this investigation. He has nothing to lose at this point if he is, in fact, not associated or linked to comment fraud. So why would he not want to do that? Why is he obstructing justice and literally blocking the New York Attorney General's office from doing its job? Why is he doing that? He has nothing to lose. You got what you wanted. You repealed net neutrality. You're done. Congratulations. Now, can you at least allow us to look into this process and see what went wrong and why our identities are being used without our permission? So I don't understand why Ajit Pai is not complying, why he's blocking the New York Attorney General's office from investigating this, it boggles my mind. I don't get it. Something deeper is going on here. And again, I don't want to jump to conclusions without evidence because all I can do at this point is speculate, but something's not right. This is a fishy situation. And Ajit Pai in obstructing justice is making matters worse not just for everyone else but himself as well because now it seems like he's personally involved in comment fraud Now that the death of net neutrality is seemingly inevitable at this point, we still do have a couple of months to fight back before these new rules take effect. Now, one of the most important voices in the fight to save net neutrality, Minion Clybourne, actually gave us some insider insight as to what we can now expect if we're not able to convince Congress quick enough or a court to at least temporarily block these rules until we're able to defend net neutrality in a court. And she paints a really bleak picture when it comes to what the internet would look like in the future without net neutrality. In fact, this repeal of net neutrality is even worse than we previously thought. But before I get to what she said, I can't not talk about how little respect FCC Chairman Ajit Pai has shown her throughout this process. So for example, after she gave an impassioned 20-minute speech prior to the FCC's vote to kill net neutrality, this is how Ajit Pai responded.
4: Thank you.
3: Thank you Commissioner Clyburn. I'm going to mark you down as a no. <laughs> so, that's a, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> uh, Commissioner O'Reilly.
1: So, time and again, Ajit Pai has demonstrated that this is all just a big joke to him. And after she gave a passionate speech about an issue that the overwhelming majority of Americans care about, that's all Ajit Pai had to say. Unreal. And when it comes to the lone hyena that was laughing especially loud after he made that quote joke, if they're not a literal executive from Comcast or Verizon, then they've got to be as big of a shill as Ajit Pai himself. (laughs) You are really gone. Now, after this vote took place, Minion Clybourne put it all into perspective for us, and she explained exactly what's at stake now that net neutrality has been repealed.
4: We have taken ourselves out of the game. We have pulled our own teeth at the FCC, so we're toothless, we're powerless. If they disclose, then they can block, they can slow down, uh, they can prefer traffic uh, or websites or applications over the other. And when they say they have no incentive to do so, I say pass this prologue. THESE COMPANIES HAVE INDEED Slow down completing traffic, blocked uh, competing voice services. They've done so in the past. If they've had business interests, um, they have shown preference to their interests over competitors uh, who are attempting to thrive online. And that's what's at stake. Now, after she clearly explained that net neutrality was essential for a free and open internet
1: because these large multi-billion dollars internet service providers have a history of anti-consumer and anti-competitive conduct, one of the hosts there apparently wasn't paying attention because just a couple of minutes later, he asked her this question. But
3: a lot of the critics of net neutrality are saying all of you need to take a breath and calm down. You're hyperventilating about something that nobody has any proof is actually going to happen. What's your response to them?
4: I say past this prologue. These companies have indeed Slow down completing traffic, blocked uh, competing voice services. They've done so in the past if they've had business interests. Um, they have shown preference to their interests over competitors. Had you been paying attention, you wouldn't have needed to ask that question. But Minion Clyborne
1: in explaining the damage that this is going to do, she really explains how shady business practices from ISPs, that's really just the tip of the iceberg, because this issue goes much deeper. And she explains in this next clip how the death of net neutrality actually
4: impacts democracy. We would not know any anything about Ferguson, Missouri, if the provider was able to block yeah. or, or throttle Because the media outlets, you remember, they weren't covering Ferguson. That's right. They weren't covering that movement until that hashtag started trending. That's the power of the Internet. We will be better able to tell our stories, to promote our businesses, to enhance our ability to find out what's going on in the world, but not if an Internet service provider has the keys to our success, the keys to the Internet, that they will be able to block or slow down or or inhibit uh, free speech. That's what's at stake today.
1: So the implications of this are just downright terrifying because if Comcast, for example, doesn't want to talk about a particular issue, like Ferguson, well then all they have to do is make sure that those stories don't gain traction online. And now, with this vote, they have the power to block and throttle internet news agencies that do want to talk about these issues. So, they no longer have to compete with internet news agencies. They no longer have to feel pressure to cover what everyone is talking about online now that they have the power to block and throttle content. But Ajit Pai assures us that we don't actually have to worry about internet service providers blocking and throttling content because there's still going to be one government agency that will police these ISPs, the FTC. The problem is that the FTC is incapable of dealing with net neutrality. They don't have the power, nor do they have the experience needed to protect the internet. And furthermore, when it comes to ISPs violating net neutrality, Minion Clyburn explains that what the
4: FCC did here with this vote is actually... Worse than we thought. We punted. We said the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, will be the one that will protect you. But what we didn't tell you is the FCC does not have real clear authority, and the FTC can only help help you. After a harm is done. So, if you can prove that it's unfair or deceptive, then the FTC can protect you. But it's not deceptive if I've disclosed. And who knows what the definition of fair will be going forward. Mm-hmm. Now, all you have to do is put it in a small print in paragraph 25, and you will be able to do what you want. You will be able to control my experiences. You meaning the internet service provider, and I have to hope for the best. And there's no agency that will, um, will stop it. So what she's saying here is just incredible to me. Basically, the
1: FTC can't just prosecute any company that violates net neutrality. The only way that they're able to do that or attempt to do that is they have to go after that company after a violation of net neutrality occurs. And second of all, the consumer actually has to prove that that company was deceptive in its decision to block or throttle content. But as Minion Clyburn explained in that clip, all ISPs have to do is add a little clause in the terms of service that nobody ever reads saying that they are blocking or throttling certain websites and then that's it, they're protected. So now that we know this, well this obviously implies that the FTC is even going to be more useless than we previously thought. But since the ftc is useless one would expect states to come to the rescue and implement their own net neutrality protections but as minion
4: Clyburn explains in this next clip well the fcc's vote stopped states from doing that as well and not only did we say the states can't play in this space they can't protect or enhance consumer protections for their own neighbors and citizens we didn't give them proper notice So that process in and of itself is flawed. So this whole process leading up to this decision, it's obvious that the fix was in no matter what Millions of Americans said, no matter how much notice we did not give, they were going to repeal the net neutrality rules, due process or not. So not only is the FCC getting out of the game of enforcing net
1: neutrality, but they're making sure that they tie the hands of any other governmental body, like states, from coming to the rescue to enforce net neutrality themselves. So... It's just absolutely absurd to me. They're not only against net neutrality, but they're making sure that we have no legal recourse if companies do, in fact, violate net neutrality. And what Minion Clyburn alluded to in that last clip was that Ajit Pai was not doing what he was supposed to do as the head of the FCC, and she actually joined her colleague, Jessica Rosenworcel in suggesting that it may be the case that Ajit
4: Pai is currently obstructing justice by his actions. I don't understand why the agency that in the past has worked cooperatively with attorneys general basically ignored uh, the, the cries from the attorney general saying, you know, we've got stolen identities and we've even found traces to Russia, about a half a million pro repeal people who wanted to get rid of net neutrality protections we can they can prove uh, that that information those submissions were made f- by russian from russian influencers so it, it is it, it's perplexing to me that if we see a process that has been compromised our online system has been compromised which which skewed the opinions that people saw over the internet Meaning those who wanted to get rid of net neutrality protections and made it look like more people wanted to when in fact the vast majority of legitimate commenters were pro net neutrality, they wanted to keep our rules in place. And for those reasons, Ajit Pai is not only allowing fraud to occur, but
1: he's actually complicit in the fraud by blocking the New York State Attorney General. From doing this investigation. He's not complying with Freedom of Information Act requests. He's not supplying them with information that they need to prove that fraud was committed. Now, when she talks about the potential use of Russian troll farms submitting fake comments, this isn't like the usual Russian hysteria we see from Democrats because there actually are troll farms all over the world that could very well be culpable. But I'm especially interested in finding out if any large internet service providers or even Ajifai himself are linked to one or more of these troll farms in any way because we know that they have an interest in making it seem as though the public was on their side when we all know that that's not the case. So this is disturbing. But I will say that I'm incredibly thankful for the insight that Minion Clyburn is providing us with. I will say that I really wish that she... Would have spoken out sooner like her colleague jessica rosenworcel but nonetheless you know i don't want to denigrate what she's doing here because in speaking out and providing us with this insight as to what this repeal would do i think that you know what she's doing is invaluable so in the end we have to fight because now that we know specifically what this repeal of net neutrality means for the future of the internet it's worse than ever and we have to fight back So even though it's no secret that FCC Chairman Ajit Pai is a pathological liar, every now and then he does inadvertently tell the truth. Now, typically he does this by contradicting a previous argument he's made in order to validate a different lie he's telling. So when he was asked about our ability to access content online after the repeal of net neutrality takes effect, this is what he had to say. And I actually don't know what I think of this, but here's the Uh, the line that if net
0: neutrality is rolled back that a handful of companies will be able to control content and if they don't like what they're seeing or you're broadcasting they can shut it down should we be worried about that
3: no i think what net neutrality uh, repeal would actually mean is that we once again have a free and open internet Uh, the government will not be regulating how internet service providers how anyone else in the internet economy manages their networks
1: now the reason why he says we shouldn't be worried about this is because it actually hasn't happened yet Case in point, all of these harms that these celebrities and
3: whatnot are talking about are all hypothetical. There's no market failure here. Internet service providers are not
1: and have not blocked content willy nilly. So according to him, we shouldn't be worried about large Internet service providers engaging in anti-competitive conduct because they haven't done this before. Except in an interview with The Daily Caller, he actually said something that was the opposite of what he's saying here. Is it your view that the FCC's rules are redundant to the activities of the FTC, for instance?
3: Well, I think it's number one that the FCC is trotting on ground that has already been plowed by the FTC. Right. I mean, the Federal Trade Commission for a long time has policed these very practices. For example, we have cases involving AT&T and Trackphone and other wireless companies for this very practice of throttling. So I think it is duplicative in that sense. But more fundamentally, I think it's also a question of how do you want to approach the risks that are there in terms of internet service provider behavior? Do you want the FCC to be preemptively regulating everybody? Or do you want the FTC to take more targeted action? And I think, and some Silicon Valley entrepreneurs too, like Ben Thompson of think that the best way is to have the scalpel of the FTC as opposed to that sledgehammer from the uh, FCC.
1: So not only did he admit once again that there is a risk associated with the repeal of net neutrality, but I want to replay the important part again.
3: Cases involving AT&T and TrackPhone and other wireless companies for this very practice of throttling.
1: Oh, so apparently, according to Ajit Pai, there are cases where internet service providers did throttle other companies, their competitors. But I thought that you said that wasn't happening.
3: Internet service providers are not and have not blocked content willy-nilly.
1: So notice how the evidence he uses changes depending on the argument he's trying to make. So if he's trying to convince you that the FTC is the only agency we need to be on the beat, and enforce net neutrality, then he'll cite examples as to how the FTC actually prosecuted companies like AT&T who were guilty of throttling. But when he's trying to convince us that nothing bad will result from the repeal of net neutrality, he then tells us that these companies have never throttled and they wouldn't do just that once he gives them the power to do just that. And all of these harms associated with the repeal of net neutrality that we keep talking about, they're only hypothetical. So clearly, his story will change depending on what he he's talking about. Isn't that convenient? Now, the reason why nobody believes him is because he keeps contradicting himself, so he's obviously lying, but second of all, even conservatives, people within his own party, are against what he's doing because he is allowing for the possibility that large internet service providers like Comcast can block or throttle access to conservative websites as well. This is a reality he doesn't want to acknowledge, but thankfully, Tucker Carlson, in an interview he did with Ajit Pai on Fox News, actually brought this possibility to Ajit Pai's attention.
0: I guess what's changes? is we're in the middle of the biggest witch hunt in American history and corporations are complicit in that. So what would happen if this is repealed and the Southern Poverty Law Center says, you know, I saw Fox News the other night. That's hate speech. Internet service provider shut them down. What would prevent the service provider from doing that.
3: Well, one thing is that the FCC requires transparency. If any ISP uh, engaged in that kind of conduct, they would have to disclose it. Additionally, the Federal Trade Commission would have jurisdiction over it, but I think you've actually put your finger on something that's very important that I've talked about. Where is the real threat to the free and open Internet? And one of the things that people have suggested is it's not Internet service providers, it's some of the content companies that decide what you see on the Internet and, more importantly, what you don't see. Where is the transparency there? Shouldn't we have a conversation that involves them as well?
1: but companies like Facebook and Twitter who do sometimes block conservative accounts don't have the ability to block all of the internet, whereas ISPs do. Twitter and Facebook can't control the totality of the internet, but again, Internet service providers do, and transparency isn't going to stop them from resorting to anti-competitive, anti-consumer business practices because it's not like the FCC is mandating that these companies hold a press conference every time they decide to throttle a new website. All they have to do is disclose that they're doing that in their terms of service, which 99.999% of the population will not read. Now, this is what he has to say about companies like Twitter and their handling of conservative accounts. I, too, have raised
3: some of these concerns. Uh, when Twitter, for example, restricted uh, Congresswoman Marsha Blackburn's right. YouTube video announcing her uh, her run for the Senate in part because of her pro-life views. And same thing with YouTube demonetizing Diamond and Silk, as uh, some Trump supporters and Dennis Prager's videos. I mean, a lot of these decisions impinge on the free expression online that we've all come to cherish, but there's no real transparency into how these decisions are made. And
1: there's made. never any outcry. So, if Twitter is willing to block conservative content, why wouldn't Comcast be willing to do the exact same thing? His logic makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. If you truly believe that conservatives are actually being targeted online, why wouldn't Comcast, for example, a company that literally sponsored the 2016 Democratic National Convention, do what Twitter is doing now? which you say is a problem. His logic makes absolutely no sense, which is why conservatives support net neutrality, because they also don't like what Twitter does to certain conservative accounts. And they agree with what Ajit Pai is saying here. It's just that they can actually take the next logical step and realize that if Twitter does it, comcast probably will do the same thing but again ajit pai knows exactly what these companies are capable of because he actually explained it to us before
3: cases involving at&t and track
1: and other wireless companies
3: for this very practice of throttling
1: so there you have it ajit pai admits here that companies have throttled in the past after he has repeatedly insisted that they would never do such a thing who are you going to believe ajit pai who came from the indus- industry and probably is going to go back to the industry, or the history of these companies and their anti-competitive, anti-consumer conduct. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you have to be a fool to believe what Ajit what Pai is saying. And that's why a majority of Americans don't buy what he's selling. When the FCC voted to repeal net neutrality, that was arguably one of the biggest stories of 2017. But when it comes to coverage of the issue of net neutrality, particularly on cable news shows, Well, we've seen a lot of propaganda being done at the behest of multi-billion dollar internet service providers now that's only when you take into account cable news shows that actually talked about net neutrality because up until this point a lot of shows didn't even mention it as an issue in fact to some pundits in the mainstream media This is a new development to them. I'm not even kidding about that.
3: The FCC voting along party lines three to two to repeal net neutrality is very significant development.
1: Lori, a very significant development now. And we'll see how this impacts the average person out there. Welcome to the party, Wolf. I'm so glad that you could finally join the rest of us who've been talking about net neutrality since January when we knew that Ajit Pai would, in fact, be pursuing a repeal of net neutrality. So it's only a development if you haven't been paying attention. But aren't you supposed to inform the American people? So why weren't you informing the American people? If you're not informed yourself, then you shouldn't be a broadcaster. But Wolf Blitzer, you know, not to just pick on him, because he's not the only one who has recently learned about the importance of net neutrality, because in an interview with FCC Commissioner Minion Clyborne, one MSNBC host actually couldn't figure out who was in favor of the repeal of net neutrality.
5: Help us understand who is it that wants this.
1: Well, Stephanie, if you turn around and look behind you, you'll actually notice that there's a huge logo behind you and that'll provide you with a hint as to who actually wants this because Comcast, who owns the company you work for, is one of the biggest spenders when it comes to anti-net neutrality lobbying. But Stephanie isn't the only one at MSNBC who can't figure out who's behind this. Who was really pushing this? Who is behind this? Look behind you. But look, I don't want to be too hard on these MSNBC hosts because they've at least come to a conclusion that net neutrality is good and they support net neutrality. But if you ask Tucker Carlson over at Fox News, well, he's so confused, he doesn't know what to think about net neutrality. Yeah, I'm,
0: I'm not even sure what I think of it, but it does seem like someone's spending a lot of money to lobby public opinion on this subject. Oh,
1: I can assure you, Tucker, there's a lot of money being spent to lobby someone's opinion, but it's not the public's because anti-net neutrality lobbying is three times as prevalent as pro-net neutrality lobbying. So money is definitely being spent, Tucker, but not in the way you think it is. Now, you might think that Tucker Carlson is dim-witted to not reach the same conclusion as 83% of the American people because net neutrality is a no-brainer. Who would be against it? But I honestly don't know what's worse, Tucker Carlson's indecisiveness or this next host's naivete. We're trying to get... Uh, I, I'm
0: try, I've am trying. i been struggling to get a, a yes. sort of a big picture sense of what the unintended consequences of this may be because I'm prepared to take certain companies at their word that
1: they're not intending to throttle back services and they're not intending to favor some services over others. So when companies like Comcast and Verizon spend millions upon millions of dollars every single year lobbying Congress so that way they're able to obtain the power to block and throttle content they don't like, we're supposed to believe them when they tell us that they're not going to block or throttle content they don't like, even though they have a history of doing just that, and they've been pressuring Congress to give them the ability to do that? How could you possibly be that naive? I mean, why on earth would would he believe what Comcast is telling them? It's almost as if he's on their payroll or something. (laughs) So at this point as you can see there's a lot of media hosts that are just playing dumb when it comes to the issue of net neutrality but other hosts have decided to take a different approach some of them have decided to just be condescending to viewers
5: the move causing some on the left to paint an even dire picture with a cnn headline reading quote End of the internet as we know it.
1: Bum, bum, bum. (laughs) You silly liberals, you're just being hyperbolic. Except this isn't actually a partisan issue at all. Because most conservatives actually don't have their heads stuck up their asses, unlike you. 73% to be exact. And they've realized that if Twitter is willing to kick conservatives off of their website, then what's to say ISPs won't cut off your access to conservative websites? I mean, this is a bipartisan issue because it affects everyone equally but one conservative in particular doesn't see it that way thanks for the work that you're doing to deregulate
6: because obviously the regulatory regimes put in place as sort of a poison pill by the obama administration with the, with the help of the media uh, are are not going to benefit I think consumers either in the short or the long run so thanks for the hard work you're doing
1: thank you so much Ajit Pai for doing something that will specifically fuck me over personally I really appreciate it this is one of the most well-respected quote intellectuals on the right that's actually stupid enough to think that a company like Comcast wouldn't cut off access to his website in the event they said something Comcast deemed as hate speech for example so even though Twitter is willing to ban accounts from conservatives that they disagree with Comcast would Ever do anything like that. They would never block the websites of conservatives they disagree with, would they, Ben?
7: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, if you believe that, Ben, then I've got some snake oil to sell you. But not all of these hosts were completely dishonest because. Even while some were trying to convince us that these large internet service providers like Comcast and Verizon are benevolent and they'd never block or throttle content, they'd never set up a tiered internet access system, well, some in the mainstream media just outright told us the truth but that it was a good
6: thing. This is a real positive step. You know, the the internet, Neil, it's not a free right. It's not a public utility. It was actually created by private companies as the FCC commissioner alluded to. Companies that have spent billions of dollars in not only creating it, but now maintaining it. And it's theirs to control in price. And what you will see is more
1: innovation more tiered options as was alluded to and it makes sense deal this is super positive you guys we're finally going to see tiered internet packages so if you want to gain access to netflix and hulu you have to spend an extra ten dollars i can't wait i mean this, this is what he's telling you he is trying to convince viewers that tiered internet packages is a good thing but here's what else we can expect once the repeal of net neutrality comes into effect uh,
8: what do you think happens now I think actually
3: you're going to see a great explosion of entrepreneurial brilliance
1: entrepreneurial brilliance. Yes, because nothing screams innovation and entrepreneurialism like allowing a handful of companies to take control of the entire internet and literally be able to control everything we see on the internet. But according to Tucker Carlson, the internet is already like this. A
0: lot of people, a lot of famous people have very strong opinions about net neutrality. They warn if it's repealed, a handful of tech companies will have total control over the internet. Wait, doesn't
1: that already describe the status quo. No, it does not. The companies that he's talking about might be in control of their own websites, but they don't control the totality of the internet. They don't control your access to other websites, just what you see on their website. So, clearly, Tucker Carlson doesn't know what he's talking about, hence why he can't decide what he thinks about net neutrality. I'm not even sure what I think of it. But I actually want to get back to Neil Cavuto here, because for those of us who are worried about anti-competitive, anti-consumer conduct by these multi-billion dollar companies, well, he assures us that we don't actually have to be worried because there will still be one government agency that's going to look out for us, the FTC. The FTC,
4: then, would rule this type of activity
1: as illegal
3: and you try it, you're in big trouble. right right the federal communications commission kicked the ftc federal trade commission off the beat in 2015 right now the ftc is back on the beat
1: except aren't you forgetting one really important fact neil the ftc can only take action in the event these companies don't disclose that they are throttling other websites. So as long as they're upfront about it and they include one sentence in their terms of service that nobody will see about how they're going to throttle certain websites, then there's nothing that FTC can do. And even if the FTC wanted to take action, they don't have the power to do so. They're not capable of enforcing net neutrality like the FCC is, which means the internet will no longer be free and open despite what these two liars tell you. Now, even if you think, that net neutrality is important and that a free and open internet is important. Well, as Neil Cavuto was going to explain here... The problem is that net neutrality, it just hurts investment.
3: I do remember the internet alive and well and thriving up to 2015
8: when when net neutrality came into being. And I do remember that since it did come into being, all the big boys started cutting back on infrastructure expansion and the like. It was building and increasing
1: every year. Since then, it's been going down. That's a nice talking point that you're using from the telecom industry, Neil. But the fact of the matter is that the big boys all actually increased investment after net neutrality rules went into effect in 2015 yeah you heard me right they increased investment. As Ars Technica reports, in December of 2015, AT&T told investors it would actually increase investment after net neutrality passed. Comcast spent a total of $7.6 on investment in 2016. So that means after net neutrality passed, they spent more than ever. Verizon also increased investment by 3.1% overall after net neutrality passed. Charter CEO told their investors that Title II didn't actually hurt them at all. So if you seriously remember That all of the big boys in the industry were investing up until 2015, then you need to see a psychiatrist because you're delusional, Neil. Now, when it comes to all of these pundits in the mainstream media, if they're not just outright lying about net neutrality like Neil Cavito was doing here, then they're being really disingenuous and framing the argument in a way that misleads viewers. So, in one example from CNN, they tried to paint this as a war between large multi-billion dollar corporations that didn't actually involve the American people.
5: Cover technology, look at the tech companies who have been very outspoken about the stakes here. You have the telecom industry in favor of this for a long time. They said that the current regulations, uh, you know, get in the way of daily business, that they're stifling innovation, which you heard a little bit about. But you have the tech companies on the other end who say that, you know, this gives Internet providers too much power, too much control over the way online companies. Content is delivered. It creates a tiered internet. So,
1: at face value, what they're saying probably doesn't seem that problematic, but they're framing of this issue is, in fact, problematic because if viewers watch that segment and they think that this is only a battle between Comcast and Google, then what's the implication? Well, they'd think, well, this is a battle that they're having and it doesn't actually concern me. But the real way to frame this story, because it's accurate, is this is about internet service providers like Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T and the American people. They want to be able to control what we see on the internet. Just because Google and Facebook support net neutrality doesn't mean that they're the main proponents for net neutrality this is a grassroots issue that we've been fighting for so you don't get to credit Google and Facebook as being the leading voices in the fight to save net neutrality because that's inaccurate. And quite frankly, I don't care what Google or Facebook thinks. Our opinion is what matters because we're supposed to be a democracy, not a fucking corporatocracy. Now, to be completely fair, not all coverage of net neutrality was atrocious. To her credit, Joanne Reed actually did a great job covering the topic, and even Brett Baer of Fox News had a surprisingly objective take on the matter. But overall, most of the news shows that covered net neutrality were biased, and they just downright lied about the issue altogether. Now, I'm saying that because I actually took the time to go through and watch every single segment about net neutrality I could find after it was repealed. Now, the problem is that when these news shows don't cover the topic of net neutrality adequately, then that spreads even more misinformation than is already out there. And this, of course, benefits Ajit Pai, who gets to pretend that the topic is super complex and the meaning of net neutrality is amorphous. Well, it's easy to come to that conclusion if the media isn't doing its job and properly informing the public about an issue that will directly harm them. But I mean, since Fox News does the bidding of the Republican Party, who in turn does the bidding for their largest donors, which include ISPs, and of course, since MSNBC's parent company is against net neutrality, it's no wonder why the coverage of this issue has been so terrible. And again, of course, there were a couple of exceptions where... Pundits covered the topic sufficiently, and they did a good job explaining what's at stake, but overall, I'm not just talking about these pundits because I like to make fun of them, even though, admittedly, they are easy targets, but I'm talking about this because what they're doing is incredibly harmful. This is an issue that will affect every single American that uses the internet, and these cable news shows, I mean, they're tasked with a duty of educating the public, and they're not doing that, which is why every time they cover net neutrality— I feel compelled to come out and debunk any myths they try to spread about it. So, if you watch anything regarding net neutrality in cable news, you have to be cognizant that they are most likely going to report it in a really misleading way. And again, that is so problematic. So, in an interview with Fox and Friends, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai made it very clear that he's got no love for proponents of net neutrality. Now, the feeling is mutual, buddy. Now, what he states here is that he thinks we're arbitrarily resorting to hyperbole and hysteria as a means of pushing for our agenda which is a free and open internet through net neutrality now in this interview he's going to talk about how he just wishes that our side would take this debate more seriously
3: so,
5: g you're a smart guy you went to harvard you're general counsel for verizon you have jimmy kimmel calling you names what did you think of that
3: I think it's
1: unbecoming of uh, the seriousness of this debate, but again, it's not surprising. Actually, you know what? Thank you for that, Ajit, because I too believe that we should be taking this debate seriously because net neutrality is a really important issue. So I'm glad that he brought up the things that undercut the seriousness of this debate. But truly, if there's anyone that could speak to the seriousness of this debate and how serious they've taken this issue... It's Ajit Pai, right? Because after one of his colleagues gave an impassioned 20-minute speech before the vote to repeal net neutrality, this is how seriously he took her speech. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Commissioner Clyburn. I'm gonna mark you down as a no. (laughs) Uh, Commissioner O'Reilly.
1: Now, nothing expresses just how serious Ajit Pai is taking this debate than this next clip here.
3: Right, a or just a- Ajeet Pie reminds me of Pinocchio. Except instead of his nose growing when he lies, his head starts bubbling. Hashtag pie bobblehead. Sharice, I find that really offensive. I always tell the truth.
1: Congratulations, Ajit Pai. Congratulations. You've proven that you're definitely taking this debate seriously. You're the grown-up in the room and we're the children who aren't actually taking this debate seriously. Except, obviously, the opposite is true. All that we've been doing since we knew that you wanted to kill net neutrality was get you to take this debate seriously and, more importantly, take what the American people are saying about net neutrality seriously. But all that you've done is show the contempt you have for us. You've told us explicitly that you don't care about comment fraud that was committed at the behest of large, multi-billion dollar companies. You've stated that you don't give a damn about what we tell you and what percentage of the public supports net neutrality and how many comments we submit and how much of a ruckus we make. You've told us time and again that public support for net neutrality has no bearing on your vote. And sure enough, you voted to kill net neutrality, and yet you have the audacity to tell us that you wish we would take this debate seriously, Ajit? Really? You're seriously going to contend that after the way that you've presented yourself as a government official, as the head of a huge agency that's supposed to look out for consumers? Really? Really? Now you're gonna complain? Because we could talk all day about how you've acted like a fucking child when it comes to the repeal of net neutrality. How you've basically spit in our faces and mocked us and mocked the American people. In fact, speaking of mocking people, I remember at this closed event, the telecom prom, you mocked yourself.
3: People ask me, well, what keeps you up at night? And that's actually pretty easy. The thought of the FCC having to resolve a retransmission dispute between Verizon and Sinclair. I mean, how do you choose between your longtime love and your newfound crush?
1: So after watching that, I don't know how this sociopath has the gall to contend that we're not taking this debate seriously. It's absolutely mind-boggling to me. Ajit Pai is probably one of the most shameless people in the history of the American government. And it's no wonder why he is now the most hated person on the internet. Everyone else who was hated on the internet before is now thankful that you've repealed net neutrality, Ajit, because you are now the most hated man, not just on the internet, but in America, because you brazenly violated the overwhelming majority of the American people and went against their desire and repealed net neutrality anyway. So cry me a river if you think we're not taking this debate seriously. If there's anyone who hasn't taken this debate seriously, if there's any one individual that undercut the seriousness of this debate, it's you, Ajit Pai. So by now, unless you're living under a rock, then you know about the now viral video Ajit Pai created with the Daily Caller in order to convince Americans that his repeal of net neutrality wouldn't actually ruin the internet. Now, of course, this is one of the most disliked videos I've ever seen on YouTube, but there's one individual in particular that doesn't like this video a lot. In fact, this individual doesn't like this portion in particular. (laughs) So this video actually pissed off a Jedi, Mark Hamill, who, as you all know, plays Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. Actually, tweeted to Ajit Pie and trolled him in the most savage way possible. He says, "Cute video, Ajit, aren't I precious Pie? Barf emoji." <laughs> but you are profoundly unworthy to wield a lightsaber a jedi acts selflessly for the common man not lie to enrich giant corporations by the way did you pay john williams his royalty at ajit pai fcc corp shill hashtag a jedi you are not <laughs> Now, once Mark Hamill tweeted to Ajit Pai, porn-loving Senator Ted Cruz decided to come to Ajit Pai's defense, and he penned a condescending tweet to Mark Hamill. Stating, Luke, I know Hollywood can be confusing, but it was Vader who supported government power over everything said and done on the internet. That's why giant corporations, Google, Facebook, Netflix, supported the FCC power grab of net neutrality. Reject the dark side, free the net. Now, if you've been watching the Humanist Report, specifically my coverage of net neutrality, you know that I take issue with about 10,000 different things he said in that short tweet. But, Rather than responding to that, I'm going to let Mark Hamill respond because he decided to (laughs) respond to Ted Cruz in perhaps the most savage way possible. He states, Thanks for explaining it to me, Ted Cruz. I know politics can be confusing, but you'd have more credibility if you spelled my name correctly. I mean, it's right there in front of you. Maybe you're just distracted from watching porn at the office again. (coughs) god damn (laughs) that was ruthless now i i kind of do want to address ted cruz's argument because it's bugging me just because companies like google facebook and netflix are on our side doesn't mean that this is a fight between corporations this is a fight between large internet service providers and the people when Ted Cruz says free the net, what he really means is free the net from the government and allow corporations to take control of the internet. So if you don't like gov- government regulatory power and you think the government shouldn't overstep its bounds, then have fun with large multi-billion dollar corporations controlling the internet because that's what's going to happen. So look, I saw this and I could not not talk about it. So um, hopefully you enjoyed this short video on Ajit Pai getting ruthlessly trolled by Luke Skywalker so even though the fight to save net neutrality heads to the courts let me be clear about one thing the american people will never ever acclimate to a world with no net neutrality so we will never back down ever and if ajit pai thinks that we're ever going to stop he's wrong and to the chagrin of ajit pai the opposite happened he just catalyzed a new nationwide movement to solve this issue forever so as zaid jalani of the intercept reports Killing Net Neutrality has brought on a new call for public broadband, and he explains, The Federal Communications Commission's 3-2 to vote to repeal net neutrality rules has many worried that internet service providers will now build the same sort of tiered internet that some other countries have, where individual providers can collude to throttle traffic to certain websites and services in order to shake money from consumers or companies themselves or both. For instance, in Morocco last year, multiple internet service providers worked together to briefly block voice chat services like WhatsApp and Skype in what was interpreted by some as an attempt to push consumers to subscribe to their phone subscriptions instead. But Seattle's Socialist Alternative Council member, Kashima Sawant, the prime mover of the city's successful bid to enact a $15 an hour minimum wage, has another idea. She wants her city to simply build its own broadband network to compete with the private providers, guaranteeing a free flow of unthrottled information. It may sound radical, but it's not unheard of. Today, around 185 communities in the United States offer some form of public broadband service. Because these services are controlled by public entities, they are also accountable to to the public, a perk that anybody who has tried to get a broadband company on the phone can appreciate. Just ask the city of Chattanooga. The Tennessee municipality's electric power board invested in and started offering a fiber optic network to city residents in 2010. By 2016, the city was offering 1 gigabit internet service to residents for $70 a month. The cheap city-run internet acted as a sort of subsidy for small businesses, which started flocking to the city and built a vibrant tech and startup culture. So this is a powerful alternative to only getting internet from these multi-billion dollar companies that are constantly trying to rip us off in different ways. So it's kind of like the healthcare public option debate. So in 2010, as you remember, we argued that a public option was necessary to the Affordable Care Act because if individuals had the option of going with a government-run plan that would force the private providers to compete with the government prices and the same is true here if there's a public option then consumers will flock to that if the other providers in the area like comcast or verizon are going to be anti-consumer and hike prices so comcast and verizon would be forced to compete in these municipalities with public broadband and they'd have to actually offer internet that was good so this would be huge this would be a game changer but of course now that there's momentum building for public broadband Well, as you could have guessed, moneyed interests are trying to stop it. Jelani continues, a number of states with legislators backed by telecom giants like AT&T moved to ban cities from establishing their own broadband networks with statewide preemption laws. So the minute these large internet service providers saw momentum for public broadband building, they decided to buy off politicians, contribute to their campaigns, and lobby them to create laws banning public broadband that is just them being openly corrupt and not caring about what the american people think and it's not just that officials who are in state legislatures and city council governments are able to be bought off by these big companies but also large moneyed interests are deciding to get involved in order to stop the nationwide movement for municipal broadband. And this now includes the Koch brothers, because as Susan Crawford of Wired explains, bad news for internet access, the Koch brothers are fighting low-cost open fiber nets. Look what happened in Louisville, Kentucky. It's a city of about 750,000, the largest in the state. Earlier this year, the city noticed that the state of Kentucky was funding a middle-mile fiber network designed to connect the state's 120 counties and provide cheaper connectivity for municipal buildings, Kentucky-wired. As part of the project, Louisville, also known as Jefferson County, would be able to run 100 miles of fiber alongside the state network for just the cost of materials. That seemed like a great deal to Louisville. The city estimated that if it installed fiber for city use from scratch, it would cost $15 million, with the Kentucky Wired offer, the same project would cost just $5.4 million, with half of that amount dedicated to placing fiber nodes in West Louisville, a struggling, de facto segregated area of concentrated poverty, poor health outcomes, and general economic distress. The public benefits of jumping on the Kentucky Wired offer would be substantial. Not only would West Louisville get a chance at better access for its homes and businesses, but the city could install fiber-controlled, traffic signals, create better and cheaper connectivity for public safety agencies, and ship data around inexpensively to improve its operations. In a nutshell, the city would build the infrastructure and in lease capacity to private internet service providers. We were looking at this as our smart city foundation. Grace Somal, Louisville's chief of civic innovation, says at least Half of the new fiber capacity would be reserved for open access leases to encourage last mile retail providers to wire homes and businesses, all for just the cost of fiber lines. So, this is great. Louisville, they're on track to actually get public broadband. But when I told you about the Koch brothers and how they came into play, well, there's an organization called the Taxpayers Protection Alliance that began posting propaganda about how this was actually a plan by Google to get taxpayers to foot the bill for their fiber networks when Google actually had nothing to do with this in actuality. So it was propaganda and lies spread by this group. Now, this group is linked to and funded in part by... The the Koch brothers, and their network. And mind you, this group is based in Washington, D.C., not Louisville. So if we want public broadband, this is going to be a battle and a tough battle. But here's, here's the thing. If you want public broadband, the battle begins with you because all you have to do is take action yourself. Go to your county's website. Find out when the next city council meeting is. Show up and ask them, for broadband. Ask them for a public broadband option. You may have to put in some work. You may have to collect signatures, but it's worth it because if you have municipal broadband, you never have to worry about net neutrality again so long as you live in that county because your own public broadband provider isn't going to throttle access to websites because you control it. You don't control Comcast, but you do control public broadband because that's owned by the taxpayer. So, this is a huge step towards securing net neutrality. Now, again, the battle's going to be hard, but if they're doing this in red states, then you can do this in your state as well. So, definitely do what you can to make this a reality. I know I'm going to look into it and show up to my next city council and demand public broadband because this is an issue. That is all too important because we know that the internet is crucial for democracy and a free and open internet is a utility now and we're going to make sure it stays that way. As you all know, House Republicans voted for a tax reform plan that raises taxes on individuals making less than $75,000 each year in order to pay for trillions of dollars in tax cuts for the richest Americans in this country. Now, this is what House Speaker Paul Ryan wants you to think they accomplished with this vote. We
8: are about to achieve some really big things. Things that the cynics have scoffed at for years, decades even ideas that have been worked on for so long to help hard-working Americans who have been left behind for too long. Today, today, we are giving the people of this country their money back.
1: Now, what I think he means when he says they're giving the people of this country their money back, since clearly they're not giving us our money back, is that he is finally providing their largest financial contributors, his donors, with the return on their investment that they expected. Because clearly. If you are donating to a politician, you're expecting to get something back in return for that, right? So, since Paul Ryan's donors expected something in return when they contributed to his campaign, they're now not only going to get all of the money they spent donating to him back, but they're going to get even more money than ever before. Now, this is how Paul Ryan reacted when this bill passed.
0: Without
6: objection, the motion to reconsider is laid upon
8: the table.
1: Now, as you can see there, Paul Ryan had a little extra pep in his step because he's really happy about this. Paul Ryan is a millionaire himself, so this is a tax plan that will personally enrich himself. But not only that, it will enrich other lawmakers because at the very last minute, Republicans actually snuck in a provision that would encourage reluctant Republicans to finally get on board by not just further enriching their donors, but lawmakers personally. But before I get to that, at the rate this bill is expected to move through Congress, let me just take a moment to update you in the event anything changes after I film this segment.
7: Now, back to our show.
1: So there you have it. That's what's new. Now, getting to the original story. CNBC's Lauren Hirsch explains the provision allows for a tax deduction on income made from pass-through entities, like real estate LLCs, including those with few or no employees. It could thus benefit Senator Bob Corker from Tennessee and President Donald Trump, who both have real estate income. According to the website Open Secrets, Trump owns corporations operating as LLCs. Pass-through entities are businesses structured so that profits pass-through to their owners, Before being subject to the corporate tax, the owners then report that profit as their personal income and pay individual tax on it. Such companies can be small businesses, S-corporations, or LLCs. With the new language, even companies with no employees can deduct a percentage of pass-through income, thereby lowering the rate they pay. As first reported on by the International Business Times, Corker originally voted against the tax bill, but then supported it after the provision was added. He told International Business Times in an interview he only read a summary of the bill. On Monday, Senator Orrin Hatch, the head of the Senate's tax writing committee, denied the implication in news reports that Republicans added the measure at the last- minute to win Corker's vote (laughs) (laughs) oh well of course not why would anybody think that (laughs) Oren I mean it's not like this brazenly corrupt party would ever do anything and pass legislation that would personally enrich themselves I mean why would we expect that who would suggest that preposterous now I'm laughing now but really you know the bad news is that this bill does have a high chance of passing because Susan Collins, who was one of the few Republicans besides Bob Corpor that gave us hope that this bill wouldn't pass, recently vocalized her support for the bill. And also, CEOs are so confident that this bill is going to pass, as David Dayan of The Intercept reports, they're already pocketing the windfall. So at this point, it's not unreasonable to think this is a foregone conclusion. It's very likely that this bill will pass, and as soon as it passes— Donald Trump will sign it as soon as he possibly can. So this is definitely bad news for the American people because we are being robbed. Money is being taken out of our pockets to pay for tax cuts to the richest Americans in the country. It's one of the biggest robberies of the poor in American history. So it's no secret that the Republican Party is waging a war on the poor. With their tax reform bill, they are taking money away from the poor and away from people who make less than $75,000 per year. And they're using that money to pay for tax cuts for the rich. That's what they're doing. But if you thought that was bad enough, Well, they're going to be doing more to fuck over the poor and middle class in 2018, because according to Politico, the Trump administration and Republicans in Congress are hoping to make the most sweeping changes to federal safety net programs in a generation, using legislation and executive orders to target recipients of food stamps, Medicaid, and housing benefits. The White House is quietly preparing a sweeping executive order that would mandate a top-to-bottom review of the federal programs on which millions of poor Americans rely. And GOP lawmakers are in the early stages of crafting legislation that could make it more difficult to qualify for those programs. In the meantime, the Trump administration has already begun making policy shifts that could have major ramifications. Federal health officials are encouraging states to impose work requirements on able-bodied adults on Medicaid, a major philosophical shift that would treat the program as welfare rather than health insurance. The Agriculture Department said last week that it would soon give states greater control over the food stamp program, potentially opening the door to drug testing or stricter work requirements on recipients of the $70 billion program long targeted by fiscal conservatives. The president is expected to sign the welfare executive order as soon as January, according to multiple administration officials, with an eye toward making changes to healthcare, food stamps, housing, and veterans programs, not just traditional welfare payments. To be sure, many of the changes are still in the talking stages and it remains to be seen when and how they are actually implemented and at what political cost, and there remains internal debate in the administration over how to balance other priorities like an infrastructure bill. So, this is what the party does when they get elected. They were out of power, they then won in 2016, and what did they try to do immediately? They try to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which would strip millions of Americans off of their current health insurance plan. Then they pass a tax reform plan that takes money from the poor to give to the rich. And after that, they are targeting social safety net programs that the poor rely on. So they're going to exacerbate the already prevalent problem that is poverty. So all they're doing is attacking and attacking and attacking the poor. They are shameless. They don't give a fuck about the poor. I mean, they're not doing anything for normal Americans. What have they done? They've done nothing. All that they are doing is attacking the poor. And of course, what they're going to do, since they're cutting spending to social safety net programs, they're going to use that money to give private companies who probably donated to their campaigns private government contracts. So it's another form of theft. They're robbing from the poor to make the rich richer. And over time, Republicans have already been chipping away at social safety net programs. Look at unemployment, for example. Before, a lot of citizens could stay on the program for up to two years. Now, six months and you're off. You can't find a job? Too bad. When it comes to the children's health insurance program, they let it expire. Don't want to renew it. Don't want to negotiate it. Democrats have said, hey, let's talk. Let's renew this. But Republicans won't come to the table and renew CHIP. Health insurance for children. They don't just not care about the poor. They actually hold the poor in contempt. And someone like Donald Trump, who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, born into wealth, he's attacking people who are vulnerable, who are struggling to make ends meet because of greedy corporate pigs and oligarchs like himself. And he's never, ever going to experience adversity A single day in his life he's never gonna know what it's like to worry about putting food on the table for his children yet he is doing everything he can to make sure that the lives of the poor get worse it's nauseating so if you ever had any doubts about where the party stands this is where they stand they hate the poor So if you're an evangelical Christian that votes Republican, ask yourself this, are they really following the message of any religious figure? Are they following Jesus' message? I don't think so. And if you still are duped into voting for Republicans because they purport to be against abortion, well then, congratulations on being pro-life dumbass because you just voted for a party that wants to start wars with every single country in existence. So I don't know what else to say about this party. They take the words out of my mouth with their actions. They're brazenly trying to fuck us over and they don't care how it looks. They're not even going to try to pursue something that would benefit the American people. They were initially definitely going to tackle infrastructure, but now they're thinking, maybe I actually want to uh, cut the social safety net for the poor instead. Anything to take more money away from us and put more money in their pockets. This is a despicable party. In last week's Senate race in Alabama, Doug Jones was able to actually defeat Roy Moore primarily because he was one of two candidates in that race that wasn't a pedophile. Now, the most important takeaway from that race is that without black voters, Doug Jones' victory was absolutely not possible because 93% of black men voted for Jones and 98% of black women voted for him as well. So if there's any conclusion that Doug Jones should take away from his victory... It's that you got elected because of black voters. So when you get an office, you better damn well make sure you do everything in your power to represent them well. And Charles Barkley on CNN actually echoed this same exact sentiment.
5: Well, this is a wake-up call for Democrats. Your Democrats, and I told Mr. Jones this, and I love Doug, they've taken the black vote and the poor vote for granted for a long time. It's time for them to get off their ass. And start making life better for black folks and people who are poor they've always had our votes and they have abused our votes and this is a wake-up call we got it in a great position now but this is a wake-up call for democrats to do better for black people and poor white people
1: absolutely i couldn't agree more that is the exact lesson you should take away from this and thankfully dnc chairman tom perez agrees yes black voters absolutely carried
8: doug jones to victory and uh we have to recognize that as i said uh earlier this week african-american Uh, women in particular, and African-Americans generally, are indeed the backbone of the Democratic Party. And precisely because they are the backbone of the Democratic Party, we should never take them for granted. And in the past, we have. And uh, we've been going to school on that in the new Democratic National Committee, not only in Alabama, but in Virginia and mayor's races and elsewhere. And that's how we win. Finally,
1: Tom Perez is right about one thing. That is the correct conclusion to draw from this event. However, not all Democrats agree with the takeaway that's obvious. In fact, Joe Manchin has a different take on this issue.
8: Well, I just think it speaks volumes for what we call the radical middle, those of us still in the moderate middle, centrist Democrats, and for Doug to come up, coming from Alabama is gonna be a big plus, uh, be able to work in that middle. Uh, i just told doug to be be an alabama democrat don't have to be a washington democrat
1: voters in alabama were so inspired by doug jones's radical centrism that (laughs) they came out in droves to support him it's not because roy moore is a pedophile and they wanted to defeat him it's because they were inspired by doug jones that is one of the dumbest things i've ever heard and it's absolutely the opposite conclusion that you should be taking away from this election, Joe. And unfortunately, Joe Manchin is one of many Democrats that are now using Doug Jones's victory as evidence that the Democratic Party doesn't actually have to be progressive or run actual left-wing candidates in order to win elections. They can win everywhere if they just run Republicans with Ds in front of their names. But again, that's wrong. If you are elected by the people, you have to adequately represent the people. Therefore, Doug Jones, since he was elected... By black voters, his his electoral victory would not be possible without them. He should be doing everything in his power to make sure that they are satisfied with him. Now, what matters overall more than anything else is what Doug Jones is going to do. It doesn't matter what Joe Manchin says. It doesn't matter what Charles Barkley or Tom Perez says. All that matters is that Doug Jones will, in fact, do the right thing and actually represent black voters. However, he's dropping some hints on us that he might actually just get in and govern like a Republican anyway.
0: I've received calls from uh, Democratic senators. I've received calls from my longtime friend, uh, Senator Shelby, uh, Leader McConnell, Leader Schumer, uh, and and calls from the uh, president of the United States, President Trump, all very gracious uh... congratulating us on the way we have run
6: this race the way we uh... portrayed ourselves and the campaign uh... and all expressing uh... a desire to look forward uh... together to try to work for the the betterment of the state of alabama uh... And this country to do as we have
1: said from the very beginning of this campaign to try to find common ground so uh... there's your first hint about the kind of democrat doug jones will be He was happy to receive calls from Republicans, and he's looking forward to finding common ground with them. How are you going to find common ground with a party that always pushes for policies that disproportionately harms the demographic that got you elected? How are you going to find common ground with a radical right-wing party, Doug? How is that possible? So already, we're seeing signs... That Doug Jones is not going to represent black voters who got him elected. And we saw more signs about the kind of Democrat he's going to be because he states that he will promise to consider voting Republican and said explicitly, quote, don't expect me to vote solidly for Republicans or Democrats. Well, of course not. I mean, why on earth would we expect you to vote with a party whose constituents made your victory possible? Unbelievable. They carried him to victory and he's going to get an office in a line with Republicans. Now, he also urged Congress to move on from Trump's numerous sexual misconduct allegations, telling Jake Tapper that he doesn't believe the president should resign, even though Al Franken resigned for doing less than what Trump did. So, Doug Jones presumably thinks that if he acts like a Republican once he arrives at the Senate, that will increase the chance that he's elected. The problem is that in acting like a Republican and voting with Republicans, he's betraying the very voters that made his electoral victory possible in the first place and he's already signaling that he's going to get in there and not represent them and look the way that doug jones is acting here is not an anomaly this is how democrats consistently treat their most loyal voting bloc black voters help democrats get elected they then get in office and don't represent them adequately or at all now people are probably going to say mike but if he's too liberal then he's not going to get elected again but i hate to break it to you doug you weren't elected because voters like you you were elected because you're not a pedophile and this trump voter who actually voted against roy moore summed up the situation
4: perfectly
0: doug jones gonna be there two years then he'll be gone
4: <laughs> then you think a republican will be back oh yeah it will be back <laughs>
0: They could have run a three-legged dog against Roy Moore. They would have won, <laughs> you know.
1: So in Alabama... They really don't like Democrats, Doug. No matter how much you align yourself with Republicans, that doesn't change the fact that you're probably not going to be reelected. So what you can do, however, is try something different for a change. Try being progressive and representing the people who got you elected, and maybe, just maybe, that will galvanize the liberal voters that do exist in Alabama. That might encourage them to come out and actually vote for you in two years. Try pushing for policies that benefit the people that helped you get elected. And if you lose, then at least you could say you represented your constituents well. But we already know what Doug Jones is going to do. He's going to do what every other centrist Democrat does that comes from a moderately conservative state. He's going to play it safe and go along with Republicans' harmful plans. Well, look, if you're going to gonna be a middle-of-the-road Democrat, then you're not being liberal at all. You're just being right-wing. Because when you, when you live in a country where the Overton window has shifted so far to the right, well, when you play it safe... And be a centrist, you're just the right winger in that scenario. So if you actually want to have a chance, you have to be liberal, you have to be progressive, and you actually have to represent the people who made your electoral victory possible. But unfortunately for the people of Alabama, they're most likely going to be disappointed by Doug Jones. And he's going to learn the hard way that pretending to be a Republican is not going to help him get elected again. Hey, everyone. So I'm here with Namiki Konst. She actually just got done serving on the DNC Unity Reform Commission. And she's here to explain to us a little bit more in depth as to what actually happened, what got passed, and what the outcome will actually be if the greater DNC does vote to adopt these rules. So, Namiki, thank you so much for being on the show. It is so great to have you.
9: It is such an honor being on the show because I watch you and you have that that special... magic that makes everybody want to keep watching you, which I think is like the secret to online uh, television shows, I guess you would call them online shows, is that you just want to keep watching old, like I go way back. I was watching primary videos the other day. (laughs) No
1: kidding. Well, that makes me feel so good coming from you because I'm also a fan of yours. And I know that everyone on the internet in the progressive community is talking about the now viral video of you (laughs) railing against the DNC's lack of transparency. And I think that the minute where you accidentally said fuck We all lost it watching it. It was just, it was amazing. It was magical. It brought so much joy to my life. So thank you for that.
9: (laughs) (laughs) I've been saying this to a lot of people, so forgive me, but who knew that a conversation about bylaws and budgets (laughs) at a Reform Commission meeting on C-SPAN on a Saturday could go viral. I, I guess I figured something out. Yes. You know, maybe, maybe that's what the Democrats need to do when they're fighting the tax bill. They should just go on a rant and start dropping F-bombs left and right.
1: It gets people's attention. I mean, you're proof now of that.
9: <laughs> it does. I do think that there are different standards for our community than, say, the general American people. But, you know, I was surprised, I will say this, that it wasn't just progressives. I went on my Facebook, I was at an event last night, a Christmas party in New York, a political Christmas party, and, you know, pretty establishment people were were like, you know what, it needed to be said. So something's happening, which we can get to, and I think this video was sort of indicative of that, since it wasn't so much about Bernie versus Hillary, it was more about, you guys, we, we lost a lot, what are we going to do? Right. People are looking for that.
1: Yeah, you laid it out very clearly, I mean, you, the way that you described, this is what, Pain looks like. It's not just Donald Trump being in the White House. That's part of it. But I mean, people are hurting on an individual level uh, because of the incompetence of the Democratic Party. So let me ask you this. As a member of the DNC Unity Reform Commission, you served alongside other individuals that Bernie Sanders nominated, such as Nina Turner, Jane Kleeb, I believe James Zogby as well. So people who were going to bat for us. So at the end of the day, you guys had to compromise with Hillary Clinton's supporters and um supporters of chairman perez as well and you guys actually didn't have as many um representatives as they did so at the end of the day when it's all said and done do you feel as though the process itself was fair and they adequately listened to the concerns of yourself and um people on the progressive side
9: i do uh and i was concerned all the way up until the vote frankly Um, Or maybe you say minutes before the vote because we we knew where they were going on a lot of issues we We didn't know I mean when When we went to fight at the platform committee or even in the rules committee for my colleagues who were on the rules committee uh, You know it was a different situation. They had whips They had a sitting person. They had somebody who they thought was going to be president and so I think the dynamics were always a little bit different of course, they have phone calls and they're working together. But you know some people that were appointed were consultants. Some people were elected officials, some people were state party chairs. So you know, their master was different. Meaning an elected official has to represent ultimately the people. You know the buck stops when they have to get reelected and go back to their districts and talk to their constituencies. You know, a state party chair, a former state party chair has to re- respond to the needs of the state party. Meaning they're the ones which I can get to later, who have, have the burden of organizing a state party with very little money or support and no presidential race. Consultants, you know, they have their own interests at, at heart. So I think, I think what ended up happen happening, at least on my side, um, you know, there's different. There were different. There were different conversations um, happening simultaneously because there were different uh, topics that were. I was on the party reform committee. We call it. So there was a superdelegate committee, the uh, the primary commi- primaries, and then caucuses committee, and then that was all the presidential primary stuff. And then the party reform, which is the structural stuff within the party. So, you know, from my perspective, when when it came down to getting my resolutions passed, what happened behind the scenes was... I was having conversations with people that I knew had uh, more of a res- responsibility to making sure that this party was sound and structured. And working with them on the language, um, I didn't get all of my resolutions passed. There were a couple that I was a little like, ah, oh, darn it. But I got, and that was only like two or three. Um, but for the most part, the most controversial resolutions were passed. And I think part of that was because we made it such a big issue. We You saw my video, but we were out there in the public talking about it Uh, When reporters asked us about what was happening We would say you know the fight is really going to come down to the budget because that's where you have but ultimately I think the consulting class is a much they're very powerful, but they're much smaller and There are a lot of people in the party right now in terms of the party man um, membership and state party chairs as I said in my video who are really angry about the consulting class so I did not expect to get this resolution passed I thought it would be watered down I didn't expect to get you know a slew of other party reform resolutions passed where we added amendments but what ended up happening was we started to get one vote here one vote here and the Clinton people couldn't be shown as separating so in the end we passed I think like eight or nine resolutions unanimously Wow Um, and that's I'm really proud of our side for sticking to it, for really pushing hard. Um, you know, it does still have to go before rules and bylaws, but I think this was the tougher fight because it this is where, you know, in the past, when you look at other commissions, this is where stuff has kind of gone down.
1: Right. Right. So, yeah. Uh, thank you for representing us, by the way, because I think that, you know, the people who were representing progressives, I was incredibly confident in. So um Let me ask you this, though. With everything that was passed, what are some of the bigger accomplishments that you're proud of personally? I know you guys cut superdelegates by 60%. I wish it would have been 100%, but I know that you guys fought as hard as you possibly could. So can you just kind of explain what you think are the most important um, resolutions that you guys got through?
5: I mean, I
9: I think all of them are very important. Um, They all have different weight because there's there are certain things that can be done and not done. So superdelegates, we knew going in that there was going to be a mandate that was pre-negotiated at the convention mm. uh, when this commission was set up. So no matter what, we knew that there was gonna be a you know a, a serious d- a decrease in superdelegates. How the remaining would vote would be massaged out. And 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 thanks to Jeff Weaver and uh, Charlie Baker, who was on, on Hillary Clinton's side, and a couple of other folks who were on that committee, they really worked through that. Um, that's the one that we knew was going to get the most attention. From my perspective, maybe I'm a little biased, but I do think that you know, having covered the DNC chair's race and and spoken to so many DNC members who are the ultimate in- insiders and hearing their frustrations and their anger with the Democratic Party that they had invested in their entire most a lot of them their entire lives or most of their lives their adult lives, um, and knowing that this wasn't just about Bernie and Hillary, this was about losing almost 1,200 seats, not counting municipalities, and that if you don't fix the structure itself or get to the core problem, it's gonna be hard to make sure that the other reforms uh, stay in place. And so the budget to me, the party reform stuff, you know, accountability, transparency, and having some sort of electoral oversight was very, very important to me. Um, Banning conflicts of interests, So I got my conflicts of interest ban uh, passed. The more specific language was not passed, but ultimately, I mean, that's about the intent. And I think that if that is violated, I think a lot of people now have a tool where they can go and complain about this. Meaning, if you're a consultant making money in the party, you have no voting in the party. That would be like if a congressperson was a lobbyist. Right. Well, right, right now... You got it all over the place, <laughs> and so they're the ones who are setting the rules. They're holding, you know, the chair accountable or not accountable. Um, we, you know, we did some stuff about. You know, the, Donna Brazil brought to light the JFA agreements, the joint funding, fundraising agreements, which I think actually ties into the super delegates. You know, what had happened in, if you recall, in two thousand sixteen, or really as far back as two thousand fifteen, was Secretary Clinton started uh, getting endorsements with. You know the superdelegates very early on and they were disclosing that number and factoring it into the regular, you know, the, the elected delegates um, Who the pledge delegates who right. had run in their communities? so What I realized was I was going back in my memory and saying I remember when Secretary Clinton was going around the country and Talking to DNC members who are superdelegates and saying things like I will send money to your state when uh-huh. I'm mm-hmm. So that joint fundraising agreement, I believe, had a direct correlation with the super delegate situation. So we, what I said to one reporter was, we disabled most of the mechanisms uh, that can create any sort of um, malfeasance in this party or in the primary. Now, hopefully, they will be passed. I, I don't, you know, you never know what's going to happen, but uh, we're not we're not turning a blind eye. I mean, now people are excited and they're you know ready to go, and and DNC members are you know writing me and, I had three congressmen write me that they were proud of this. I mean, it's just—I think this is what happens in revolutions: is you—you um, you don't know where your allies are. But the more progress you make, and and you know, Secretary Clinton is is no longer there to. Uh, she's she's around, right? But she's not she's not going to be president. So a lot mm-hmm. of people are depending on her or afraid of her or they don't have to align with her. I mean, look at what what Gillibrand is saying now, Senator Gillibrand. So you see a lot of people that maybe have more progressive beliefs but have been holding them inside or are progressive when it comes to voting but align themselves with the Secretary Clinton. And they're all starting to kind of come together and say, all right, now's the time. The movement is on our side. I'm willing to join forces with you now. And I, I like to say that to people because You know, a year and a half ago, I said that we were really close because I knew, I knew what the the delegate breakdown was. And delegates are like the most insidery people ever. And if we were that close then, why would we give up? Why would we, you know, take our ball and go home when we're, when we're scaring them?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. The momentum is clearly on our side um, and people are watching right now. So let me ask you this, because when I was reading through the articles, um, I was a little bit skeptical, to be honest. Um even though a lot of people from the DNC Unity Reform Commission, such as yourself, um, have expressed optimism, because the way that I, um, I read this and interpreted it was as, well, you know, in order to actually reduce the number of superdelegates, for instance, the superdelegates would have to vote to curtail their own power. So do you think that these changes will actually be passed by the greater DNC, Or do you think it's still really a toss up because you guys basically made the recommendations and now Mm -hmm. it has to be approved by the aggregate DNC. So how do you think this is going to go? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but just based on kind of the vibe that you felt when you were there.
9: I think that the the superdelegates that want to keep their status the most are some elected officials, not all of them. I've talked to a lot of elected officials and congressmen who are like, "Yeah, I don't care. I think I think especially after this last time, you know, getting phone calls, and nobody, nobody wanted to be harassed. Um, <clears throat> harassed or lobbied, I'll say. You know, <laughs> potato, potato, how <laughs> you look at it. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I actually, you, know, you have to go back to 2008. Secretary Clinton wanted to eliminate superdelegates when she was running against President Obama, or at that time, Senator Obama. So this is an issue that, it's become sort of partisanized, but I don't. I mean, I don't know the raw numbers, and I, we're probably going to get some sort of information on that, and or start you know polling people or getting a sense. But, but my sense is is that most people think it's outdated, and it just looks bad. It's in, and the more it's discussed, the more it looks bad. You know, those people who are the most passionate about super delegates, in my opinion, were on this commission mm-hmm. because they created super delegates, or you know, they've been given some sort of um, information saying that superdelegates are protecting um, people of color in leadership when really there's not much, I, I, that's a controversial issue. There's There are two camps that do not agree on this. I just look at the makeup of superdelegates and realize that it, the majority were white, white men because the majority are elected, and the majority of people elected are white men. Right. But I can understand that from that perspective, but being a DNC member, or, or excuse me, being a pledge delegate um, who's been elected kind of fixes that problem. Or adding some more diversity metrics into the elected pool fixes that problem. So I, I didn't really always understand the superdelegate argument for for diversity's sake. And I think that there were some talking points sent out early on, and, and we really talked through them. And the more we talked through them and presented evidence, um, you know, those talking points kind of went off the table, at least in our room. Mm. They continued online. Uh, but it was very clear that the people pushing that narrative were not watching the commission at all. Mm.
1: And it, it was all available. And I, I know that I'm ty T Y. Yeah.
9: <laughs> yeah,
7: yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, oh man, that's a whole other story. Uh, so <laughs> I wanted to ask you because at the beginning of the year, um, back in February, when Tom Perez was elected as the DNC chairman just hours later, we were all just shocked because, the, well, not super shocked, but still surprised um, that the DNC voted down a proposal to ban lobbyist contributions to the DNC. And now a couple of months ago, we heard that Christine Pelosi had fought to actually reinstitute a ban and that was successful, but that kind of fell by the wayside. So is that included with these? Well, unity she won. She She won the vote.
9: Yeah, yeah, she won the vote.
1: Okay, okay. So has that been voted on by the DNC already? And is that... They
9: voted on it. Mm -hmm. They voted on it at the DNC meeting in Nevada. So, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that... I think what's really interesting about this moment is this is the ultimate insider game. And some people really get that the public is paying attention. Some people are not on Twitter. Some people aren't watching YouTube. Some people are, you know, kind of... Conditioned to do things the way that it's been forever, and they're really surprised when they see like, "Oh my God, what are all these activists doing in the room? How do they find out about this?" Or they just continue to operate as if like there's nothing, there's no, no one's paying attention on the outside. But you know, Christine Pelosi, and I know her last name. People they, they don't it's, understand the
7: difference. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> she
9: is Nancy Pelosi's daughter, but she is a long-time reformer and. Um, I've gotten to know her more so in the last year, and you know she will not give up on this. She does not think that lobbyists should have ever been in this party, and uh, she lost it barely that vote in February. And uh, you know, some little game was played in the you know final minutes, but then she won it this last time around. So that was a big deal. That was a very big deal. Um, and I saw an article yesterday about banning corporate money from the party. I mean. These are things that are a little complicated because I think people mix up like the DNC convention with the DNC as an institution, which, you know, does have some FEC rules that they have to follow with uh, candidates, just regular candidates with the Democratic Senate Committee, Campaign Committee and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. You know, they they all have to follow, you know, the limits on donations for someone running for Congress. Um, you know, they're 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 not entirely different. The DNC can take more money in a presidential year. So it's just it gets confusing for people. right. Um, I think, you know, my concern is more so about, you know, the DNC's taking donor money. My concern is more so about where that money's going because the reason why all these major donors have been giving money is because they've been sold a bill of goods saying, We need to raise a billion dollars for a presidential race. And then these donors found out, wait, 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 we lost the presidential race, and you're not even giving money to the states so they can go and organize in in the legislatures? And this has been operating out, they've been doing this out in the open for a decade. And no one stopped after the shellacking and said, hey, maybe some of those consultants we've been paying a billion dollars aren't that great. Maybe we should review their contracts and see where things went wrong when we just got shellacked. Yeah. Or maybe we should take some of that presidential money, a little bit, and put it in the state party money. No. I mean, maybe maybe our budget committee should actually be a budget committee where people meet and look at a real budget, not a pie chart.
1: Yeah. So, <sighs> Had it not been for your reporting, I don't think I would have known just how big of an issue these consultants were. Because you're the one who really shed light on this and just how prevalent they are, how much money they're getting paid to do, I mean, harm, presumably, to the party. Because if these are the individuals that are feeding the party advice, well, it's not really working out. Because as you stated, we lost 1,200 seats in uh, legislatures across the country. You can't do any worse than that, possibly. So, yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me how nobody said anything. So thank you for bringing that issue to light, because I think that once you started talking about it, a lot of other people began speaking about just how big of an issue this was. Now, another thing I want to talk to you about is the progressive purge that Tom Perez recently did, because (laughs) I know there had to be animosity when you guys all met. Tom Perez showed up. Um, Can you talk about that? Because... I know that you guys were pissed, and I know that he knew you guys were pissed. So how did that go, and did he say anything to you about this?
9: Uh, he didn't say anything to us about this. He had—so just for the audience who may not be familiar, again, this is like the wonkiest stuff, and I'm just so excited that people pay <laughs> um, There were a, a, a few people— Okay, so in—, in, in... And the fall DNC meeting a couple of months ago, where we had our last DNC commission meeting, as well as the greater DNC's set of meetings, where all the committees meet, and 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 you know, Chairman Perez put forward a nomination uh, for for at large members because he has the ability to do so. They're still voted on, and the um, rules and bylaws committee member and and, and like. Uh, other little keep. It. I mean, it was basically at large in rules and bylaws mm-hmm. committees and some of the other committees that are smaller. Um, what what was noticeable was that there were, I think, five people, if I recall, who had either voted for and campaigned for Bernie Sanders and or Keith Ellison, and they were removed. And some of them, you know, all of them actually, are very notable, longtime advocates, reformers in the party. You had. And it didn't look good either. You had the first openly gay member of the executive committee, Chairman Ray Buckley, who ran against Tom Perez. And, you know, you gave me credit for the the budget conversation, but the credit really lies with Ray Buckley because he's the one who got on stage as the New Hampshire party chair, the vice chair of the party. He got on stage during that debate and said, you know, I've been in the party. I've been an officer who has a fiduciary duty to the party. And I have never seen a budget, and there were gasps in the audience. So he's the one who first brought that up. When I heard that, I was like, "What? Oh, I'm going to explore that." Yeah. So that was Ray Buckley. Okay. So he just kicked off. Then you had um, so it's not just that he removed certain people; he put forward other people and didn't put anybody from our side. Mm. I mean, our side—the reformer side—is what I call it. The people, right. you know, who aren't just going to be rubber stamps for for the chairman.
1: Exactly. Um,
9: Alice Germond, who was a secretary of the party, and she's you know loved, and everybody you know who's, knows who she is. Uh, Bab Saperstein, the first trans member of the of of the party leadership, long time advocate. I mean, people were crying when when she gave her closing speech. It was not a good look, man. Uh, and then of course Dr. Jim Zogby, Dr. Right. Jim Zogby, who I have gotten to know so well over the last year, being on this commission, we were both on party reform together, and He is the conscience of the DNC, in my opinion. He's a good person. He knows so much about the party. And um, if I'm forgetting one person, I apologize. It's it's been a couple of months. But Tom Perez removed these people. And this is, you know, when I tried to get this banned in the URC and the Reform Commission, uh, I put in a couple of lines for state parties, for their chairs, and for the National Party to eliminate official slate candidates, meaning, if the chairman, if the chairman says I'm going to present my slate or a slate that kind of aligns with the chairman for all these positions, it's still going to be voted on before the greater body. But who is going to, who's going to challenge? It's 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 a form of intimidation, frankly, and it's banned in some states. But we couldn't get it banned, and we couldn't get it banned for um, states like New York, where it's a major issue, because everybody on the executive committee in New York is Governor Cuomo's uh, picking for the most part. So. That was um, very controversial and heated, and then what had happened, and I don't know if this actually, if, if you guys uh, covered this or were aware of it, because it happened very quickly. Um, that article went out, and it got picked up, and there was a lot of anger from DNC members. And this is after Tom Perez had had a bad week of, of fundraising, it was announced that you know the DNC only had $8 million. It was before Donna Brazil's revelations, and there was this rumor that was put out <clears throat> Which we now know who it came from, uh, and it was put in a Ruby Kramer's Buzzfeed article.
4: Oh, right. Okay,
9: and where she essentially reported on a rumor, right? Yeah. Everybody in the piece said this isn't true, and it was reported with a headline as if it were true, and it essentially was saying that Jane Club, who's the ch- uh, who's on a commission with us, who is the chair of the New- Nebraska Party, Jim Zogby, and they left out this part, but it was behind the scenes. It was about me. They left it out of the article. Mm. <clears throat> because I probably would have had a shit <laughs> Um <laughs> They said that we had a goal of eliminating all of the uh, women of color from the committee.
1: I remember and this.
9: I said to Ruby, I was like, listen, if we were going to eliminate people, I would eliminate the 12 consultants who all happened to be white men in the party. What? Get real. And in the executive committee meeting, where, where they were all, where everybody was giving their speeches and saying, you know, I'm so sad that I'm leaving, and people were crying, it was horrible. Um, and Ray Buckley actually got re-nominated back on because somebody nominated him, and he he won. Oh, good. So there's one person there. Um, during that, you had one of the executive committee members stand up as a woman of color, and she said, "I think it's disgusting that there are some people on this committee who have been trying to eliminate the women of color from." Um, From the DNC and this person clearly had not realized that it was false so dr. Jim Zogby got up and he he cleared it up and he was insulted and Tom Perez was in the room and 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 Keith Ellison happened to be in the bathroom and he came back and he made very strong comments about how this is a rumor and it was ridiculous and these are not the games that we should be playing and frankly it was all done to distract away from Tom Perez removing all these people but then oh wait there's more
1: this is great
9: (laughs) <laughs> the next day, you had longtime DNC staffer slash chair of the DNC, um, the convention, and now I believe she's on the Rules and Bylaws Committee, Leah Daughtry, get up and give a speech, a riling speech, she's a reverend, hmm. talking about you know, how we can't ignore women of color in this party, and essentially bringing that rumor up again, saying there are people in this room. And people were on their feet, cheering and clapping, and it was like this. I mean, she's she's done a lot of hard work for this party. No one is trying to remove. I actually had to go up to them say, "I don't. You understand you're being played, right? Like yeah. you're actually being played. They're playing you, and they're using you as cover, which is exactly the wrong thing that should be happening. No one's trying to remove you. You can give your speech." But leave, leave the part of the rumor out. It is absolutely true that the Democratic Party does not respect women of color and, and women. And, you know, that was shown in Alabama. Thank God for women of color. Right. To give a speech implying that a rumor that was published in BuzzFeed, which should have been removed, frankly, and I, I call on Ben Smith to really look into that because that has deep consequences. That shows up in Google searches. Those names are tarnished. And frankly, I think there's there's reason to, you know, actually... If they wanted to go for legally, I mean, it is such an outrageous rumor mm-hmm. that it was published, and it wasn't picked up by any other reporter. That's where you can pay, you know, for you good speak. reason. For good reason, they have editors. It was outrageous. I mean, the drama, but that stuff to me was always about distracting away from the purge,
1: right? Absolutely. And Tom Perez himself, I mean, we all saw the justification. He cited diversity as a reason for purging people who were very diverse. I mean, I think it was Bab Cyperstein who was quoted saying, look, if you want diversity, I'm one of the most diverse people ever. I'm transgender. I'm a small business owner. Um, I, <laughs> I'm Jewish. Jewish. What more do you want from me? So, I mean... Clearly, these were tactics to distract. So I'm glad that you gave us some inside insight there. Um, so before we go, I just kind of wanted to go over the smaller, lesser known things that changed. Because I think, like you said, these are all important because we all know about superdelegates. But a couple of other things that happened was there's going to be an ombudsman that people can basically call on to report any issues that they have with the fairness of the primaries. Um, there's also changes to influence states to open up their primaries, um, which I think is huge. I think that's a phenomenal thing that they could they could do because it is the case. And now correct me if I'm wrong. the the national DNC, they can't compel states to open primaries, but what they're doing is basically influencing states to open primaries by saying, well, if you want to keep your same number number of uh, pledged delegates, Then you have to open up your primaries or become less suppressive. So is that basically what that um, what that does?
9: Yeah, I mean, I open primaries is a very clear definition. So we try not to use the word open primaries because it's not necessarily opening open primaries, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it is creating scenarios where parties can be more inclusive. I mean, we use New York as an example where I live, uh, and I was a big advocate for this. I wouldn't shut up about New York. (laughs) Every time I'd speak up, like, well, in New York, everyone's eyes would go. There she goes again.
1: Well, New I'm York. in Oregon, and I talk about New York. <laughs> it's one of the worst examples.
5: <laughs> it actually is the worst example. Yeah,
1: so. it's terrible.
5: Um,
9: but, you know, w- what's interesting about New York, we learned during the primary uh, testimony, we had different experts come in and talk about, you know, their states, the good and the bad, and the Board of Elections, the guy who came um, and spoke to us from the New York Board of Elections, you know, he was like, listen... We have the second lowest turnout in the country. We have the highest concentration of Democrats. The lowest turnout for Democrats. And we're like, oh my God, this is horrible. And then he explained all of the registration dates, which, you know, I knew. Meaning they're all over the place. If you want to vote in next year's primary, you had to register to vote uh, to change your your party ID in October of this year.
1: That's crazy.
9: So, I mean, there's a million things that could happen. You could move. Last Election I had to vote. I grew up in Buffalo, New York. <clears throat> I had to vote because I was in, in between I was on the road campaigning for Bernie So I didn't have an apartment literally I didn't have an apartment I was like staying at my my friend's parents house who were so nice to, like let me stay there <laughs> But I was home for a couple days and I was like, how am I gonna vote in the primary? I Don't where am I voting? And so I called up the Board of Elections and they said well, you could go and vote uh, You could vote by mail from Buffalo. I haven't lived in Buffalo in 18 years but I voted by mail from my home in Buffalo because it was the it was the only way I could vote. <laughs> it, was, it was insane, but I think the, the the key point here is the recommendations that are made. Um, some states, you know, most states are Republican controlled, so you can't do much because the, it has to go through the legislatures, and if the Republicans. Mm legislatures you can't pass these laws so you know the goal is we would provide legal assistance and help them you know fight things at, at during primary uh, time in states like New York what we learned was all it takes is for the New York State Democratic Party to change a rule and put all the dates on on, on you know the same day we're urging states especially Democratic states to move all of their registration deadlines to the closest registration deadline to the election mm-hmm. and in New York in particular, um, you know, this has been used as a mechanism not just to keep incumbents, but I think to keep certain incumbents. Um, you know, the governor controls the party. He essentially controls the executive committee of the, of the party. He controls the finances of the party and doesn't release those finances to other candidates. Uh, so it's it's not a good look for him to, to have such an easy fix and not fix it. So it's, it's a carrot and stick thing. Like, you'll lose delegates or, you know, you'll gain help. Assistance in certain areas I mean every it's, it's actually very detailed and it's going to be massaged out more uh, in in the next couple of weeks while we present our recommendations
1: that's great N- now um, another thing that I thought was really phenomenal was that they're going to be allowing absentee balance uh, for caucuses, which I think mm-hmm. is huge because even though for me I mean theoretically speaking, I should support caucuses the way they are because that gives our grassroots candidates you know the advantage they have momentum at caucuses but just from my perspective like my my father for example is in a wheelchair so getting to a caucus would be impossible so this really changes the game when it comes to caucuses allowing people to uh, basically be present without actually being there so i thought that was huge i think one of the biggest accomplishments so let me ask you this because the whole point of the unity reform is to make the party more democratic, to make the Democratic Party more democratic. So if all of these reforms are adopted, in your view, do you feel confident that going forward, primaries will actually be fair and we'll never have a 2016 again?
9: mean well, 2016 was a unique year, and uh, I mean, for so many reasons. You, We you ran a pre-recession candidate in a post-recession world against a literally the most far-left grassroots candidate uh, in the last 50 years, you know, before Henry, after Henry Wallace. Um, I don't know if 2016 could ever happen again. (laughs) Just just generationally, I think things are gonna shift so much so. Um, I don't think the Democratic Party has a choice at this point, and they need to be reminded over and over. The DNC membership needs to be reminded that they're, and I said this in my closing remarks, um, we are we are what stands in the way of fascism right now.
7: Mm-hmm. And there's
9: really no excuse when you have a generation, you know, most people under the age of thirty six identify as progressives, but they're not identifying as Democrats. That's a problem. You are handed a generation, the largest generation in history, the most diverse generation in history, and your your rules are blocking them from joining the party. How are you, you can't just say, join the Democratic Party, when the Democratic Party has done so many things that have hurt its brand, you know, its its brand and and, and trust. I mean, there's nobody trusts it. So how are you going to bring these people back? You got to bring them back, because the alternative is you let this, like, small little contingency of, of neo-Nazis take control of the country, which they have been. Mm-hmm. You know, the numbers are in our favor. So I, I think that those are the, the talking points, the, the statements that have to be, Reinforced over and over that there's nowhere else to go right now. Do we want a third party? Heck, yeah. I was at the Working Families Party last night, their Christmas party, and they're operating in 17 states. But it took them 20 years to get there, and then it's still fusion in a lot of states. So it's kind of like a faction of the Democratic Party, it's not an actual party because it is so difficult to get on the ballot it is so difficult to get federal funding there's a million layers doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it it just means that we're so close in one area why not do things at the same time
1: exactly we have to have a multifaceted approach I always say let you know let's 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 go all in let's try to build up a third party let's try to draft Bernie for his own party let's try to reform the Democratic Party we can't afford to not try everything in our power when we have just the craziest rogue right-wing extremist party in power everywhere. It, it it blows my mind. So yeah, that makes me feel a little bit better coming from you, knowing that you're you're relatively or seemingly optimistic, right, about you know the prospects and whatnot. So is there anything else that you think is important that we didn't touch on before we go? Hmm. Because <laughs> I know we we talked about a lot in that short yeah. uh, time, hmm. and there's so much. Um.
9: I think, you know, I just do, I do want to reinforce the point that Senator Sanders understands the dynamics of party, you know, of the party pretty well. Um, you know, he went through a lot and had an opportunity to bring it to a floor vote at the, the convention and didn't. And so this commission, some people say, oh, it's a sham. Very few people are saying that now. But, you know, some people are saying, oh, it's a sham. It's a joke. They're controlling you. no, no. no. This is something that was negotiated on. And it was not an easy negotiation. I, I watched much of it at the Rules Committee. And it came out of the Rules Committee because Senator Sanders, in good faith, said, "All right, I'm going to uh, basically, you know, move all of my delegates to Secretary Clinton. Remember that on the, on the floor of the convention. And he chose fighters. He didn't chose pe- choose people that were going to uh, let, you know them pull a fast one on us. We were all very active in the primary. Many of us were involved with the platform committee and the rules committee and involved in the DNC chairs race and saw what happened there um, There was no pulling a fast one on us uh, It doesn't mean that they're not going to try but it doesn't it, I just want everybody to know that we have our eyes open And I think you saw it in my my video, but you know, I wasn't the only one who gave you know passionate speeches like that um, Dr. Jim Zogby has just been there, you know from from the beginning. He's, he knows the party very well He knows all the little tricks that they play. And he would call them out. And I don't think, I mean, this is, this is the, the lesson here, I think, is these are people who've been doing this stuff out in the open and are not used to being called out in the open. And so now they have nowhere to hide. Because they weren't doing this. You know, for the most part, they weren't doing this behind the scenes. They were doing this out in the open. And so now you have a grassroots that has been demanding reform. You have DNC members who are demanding reform because they're back in their states trying to organize and get people elected, and they don't have the tools to do so. You have DNC state party chairs who are part of this this body that matters in, in the vote, who are trying to build their parties up, and 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 in states that could be democratic, like like Arizona, which I mentioned. Um, and then you have some of the, the 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 executive, you know, the people who are in leadership who want reform. The numbers are definitely in our favor so i like to reinforce that over and over and every single day as more stories come out more people come to our side i get more notes from people i would never uh, never imagined um you know donna brazil revealing all this i think you know sometimes it takes somebody from the inside to reveal these things so that others feel comfortable coming out and saying you know what you're right you're right so if this keeps up and you guys keep the pressure um i i don't see how we can't take over this party very very soon
1: that that's perfect. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that, and we certainly will keep the pressure. We're paying attention to everything, um, and we're not okay. going to back down. So, thank you so much, Nomiki, for coming on the thank show you. and giving us the inside scoop. I had so many questions to ask you, so uh, thank you so much for answering them. Uh, can you tell us where to find you?
9: Oh, uh, <laughs> I'm on. I'm always on Twitter. Nomiki N O M I K I K O N S T. Also, find me on Facebook. There's a little checkmarking. Blue thingy on my Facebook page I will post updates there um oh I'm on TYT hi of very there <laughs> <laughs> TYT politics where I cover things like the Democratic Party at times but I, I've been doing more um, I try to focus on on stories from the macro all the way down to the micro so anything from the UK labor movement and Yannis Varoufakis from CDZ to uh, to local races like you know the IDC issue in New York I'm going to be hopefully going to Wisconsin to cover some of their movement stuff there and um, I'll be back in Puerto Rico soon too so That's perfect. Uh, all over the place. Yeah, yeah. You,
1: you really are all over the place. Yeah. And you're you're interviewing like huge people like Donna Brazil, Jeremy right. Corbin I believe. Was that you? That was that you, was, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. cuz I'm like I watched an interview with TYT with someone and I feel like it was Namiki it was a while ago. So yeah, that, that's perfect. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it was okay. great having you. Um hopefully you guys enjoyed the interview
9: happy holidays to everybody and thank you
1: hey everyone so i am here with the man who needs no introduction he's the host of the jimmy door show and aggressive progressives on tyt network ladies and gentlemen we have jimmy door here on the humanist report thank you so much jimmy for coming on the show
6: Uh, It's my pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. We were fantastic when we did the live show in Portland. Did you have a good time? Uh, It was amazing. I I honestly, it
1: was the time of my life. It was so much fun meeting you and Steph and Ron and seeing everyone that watches the shows and believes the same things that we believe and they're so passionate. It really made me feel reinvigorated about politics because, I mean, we both know this year has been pretty fucked up for politics. I mean, we've just, (laughs) we've been dealing with so much that I really felt demoralized. But that show kind of gave me a new lease on life, at least when it comes to the progressive movement. And I, I just think it was so great. Thank you for
6: inviting me, by the way. First of all, to that, that was just, Portland loved you. First of all, I don't know if you remember, not to blow too much smoke up your ass here, but they <laughs> did give you a standing ovation when you came out. So Portland loves you also. Well, and I, we love Portland. I awesome. knew Portland was going to be a I knew Portland was going to be a great city for us because when we did our Indiegogo, which is over a year and a half ago now, uh, that was our biggest city for donations was uh, Portland. So I knew it was going to be fantastic, and it was. So, yeah, thanks for doing that show. Everyone loved you on it. You were very funny like I told you would be. Thank you so much. And I'm glad you had a good time. By the way, that guy Klubeck, who we made fun of on that show (laughs) – you know the guy who told the DNC that he's going to cut their money off if they use the millionaire and billionaire word, and he looked like Eric Hartman. Yep. He is now DM. He has now DM me on Twitter three times. Now I haven't responded to either of them. In fact, he doesn't even know I've seen them because I have my Twitter. Anybody can direct message me, but they don't know I've looked at it until I accept their message. Which I haven't accepted any of his messages, and he still keeps messaging me, threatening <laughs> to sue me. He wants me to be afraid, and I'm not afraid. It's so funny to watch a millionaire shit his pants because a bunch of nobodies were making fun of him in Portland. That's amazing to me. How is he going to sue us? Because he he put himself
1: out there to be criticized. He won on MSNBC. And threatened to cut off funding from the party if they weren't still beholden to him, and he didn't expect criticism and now that he's gotten
6: criticism, apparently he wants to sue you for it. Stephen fuck off <laughs> like yeah he's a you know you made yourself a public figure when you went on television, so now people get to say whatever they want about you. Exactly. And I'm sorry, but he is worth
1: over a hundred million dollars. So if he really wants to cry himself to sleep at night because we hurt his feelings, then I'm sure he can dry his tears with all of those dollar bills that he's sleeping on in his bed that he probably just throws out and just kind of like lays all over. Yeah. So we're we're not making many friends. Yeah, we're not making many friends, Jimmy, but that's okay. Because all of these people who are rich and corrupt... They can go fuck themselves, and I don't want them to be our friends. In fact, who was it? It was FDR, I think, that said they despise me and I want them to when it comes to the oligarchs and the elites.
6: That perfectly sums it up. The quote was, never before in the history of our country has big money been more unified in their hatred for me. I welcome their hate. I love it. I I could also be per. Parap- could also be paraphrasing it. <laughs> no, that sounds better. I think
1: that you were more correct than I was on that. But I think people get the general sentiment. Like these these rich people, they hold us in contempt. And I think that the way he's DMing you constantly, it really it shows it. So Stephen Klubeck, I mean if he wants to sue you, he'll probably have to include me in the lawsuit. So I guess we'll both be in court, Jimmy. Um and, and everyone else who talked about him. He's gonna
6: have a fun time subpoenaing all of us. It's uh, it's funny to watch a guy who's been able to uh, have people wait on him hand and foot his whole life because he's rich, and everybody jumps when he snaps his fingers, and then he gets a couple of jackass YouTube guys who don't listen to him, and he's like, you will respect my authority! Don't
1: <laughs> no, no. And oh, this is new for him, Jimmy. I think that we've opened his life up to a whole new experience because I'm sure like if if you have $100 million, you have surrounded yourself with yes men and yes women. So you probably don't get much pushback, even if you say something just completely idiotic. So to have people criticize him on a stage and have people in that audience agree with us and laugh and make fun of him i mean that's gotta for the first time in your life to experience that that's got to be a wake-up call and that's why he's so butthurt about it so i i don't feel bad about it whatsoever i think he's gonna be just you know just fine with all of his money uh yeah i bet he'll be okay yeah (laughs) we're not we're not gonna shed any tears for you steven we'll we'll play the tiniest violin in the world for you
6: Speaking about that, though, Mike, I mean, could there be a better example of what's wrong with our political system than a guy? He doesn't even he doesn't even have the awareness to know that he shouldn't go on TV and say the stuff he's about to say that he doesn't. What he's literally was saying when he said that was we're the ones who control politics in America. We're the ones who tell our legislators what to legislate and what to do because I'm rich. And if they don't do what we say, we're going to screw them. That's not democracy. That's not America. That's not how our system supposed to work. And so what he thought was going on there to have the Democratic Party fall in line, and what he really did was embolden people like you and me to push back even harder against the Democrats, the corporate par- corporatists, in the Democratic Party. That's what it actually did. It exposed the Democratic Party to be even more corporate than they, anybody thought they were. So it was a horrible thing he did for himself, for the party, for whatever aims he thought he had. Because because now it's been exp- he he helped expose the lie that there's two different parties. There's one party, and it's the money party. Right. That's that's
1: what politics is all about in this country. Whichever party gets the most money from the special interests, they're going to represent that special interest. And we've seen that time and again. And you've talked about it on your show. I've talked about it on my show. But I, I just like I, I tried to think about the logic behind that interview with Stephen Kulbeck on MSNBC, and I, I couldn't figure out what he thought would be the result of this interview did he think he would be applauded did he think oh somebody's got to say this finally and i'm going to be applauded people are going to come out and cheer and say yes finally somebody said what needed to be said i mean what did you expect would happen when we have record-breaking income and wealth inequality in this country did you think that the peasants in this country would just sit back and see a millionaire demanding that the party not represent anyone but them and be fine with that
6: it's it's mind-boggling i don't They're obviously, you know, they're the, you know, part of. Part of the problem being out of touch is that you're out of touch, and you don't know how badly people have it, right? So you don't know how close they are to an actual revolution because you're a millionaire. So that's where it's phrases like "oh, they're out of bread, we'll let them eat cake" that's where that comes from, and that's what Stephen Klubeck, hes one of those guys, right? He's like, "Don't do legislation that helps people who are being crushed by this economy right now. Don't pass legislation that helps students who want to get ahead. Don't pass legislation that helps sick people." What he was advocating was for tax relief for millionaires and billionaires. That's what he was advocating for. By the way, he just got it. So he's really happy right now, and he's pretending to be upset. Right. And, you know, what you said was perfect about him being
1: out of touch because really, like, the problems that he faces are – So different than the problems that ordinary Americans faces. I think probably to him, making only $10 million in profit is a bad month for him. I think to him, only being able to buy, you know, two more private jets and one more yacht this month is probably a bad month for him. But to us, you know, it's completely, (laughs) we don't live in that world, you know, Um, we can barely fucking afford to eat in a lot of instances. We have to decide whether or not we're going to feed our children or not. It... (laughs) I, I just, I don't understand how someone is so out of touch. Um, but I mean, I guess that's what money does
6: to you. So when you see a guy like that, again, not the horror on Steven Klubeck, but it's such a perfect example of what's wrong with our politics today. Like when when any any normal person sitting at home watching him go on MSNBC, by the way, with a host who did no pushback <laughs> on what he was saying. So that, that that's supposed to be a journalist sitting about a millionaire Completely dictate which way the party is supposed to go and at no place in her head does she go You know, this is kind of not how democracy is supposed to work right. uh, You're actually articulating what all the progressives have been claim- proclaiming has have been happening in the party You're actually revealing that it's true and you're kind of articulating what's wrong with politics She didn't say any of that shit. She went along with them. So again, there's so many things in- instructive about that video. I think if there's any video this year that could tell you more about what's wrong with politics in the United States and why we got Trump. I mean, that's why we got Trump. If somebody wants to say, oh, we got Trump because of Bernie Sanders supporters, or Bernie was too critical of Hillary, or um, Susan Sarandon, or Josh Fox, or whatever they say, or racism or sexism, all you have to do is play that video and go, that's why they lost that's why because everyone sees that the parties are beholden to nobody else except their donors which is why we have half the country poor low income 63% 63% of Americans can't afford a $1,000 emergency, and why they voted for Donald Trump and half the country stay home. Because they didn't wanna come out and vote for Hillary Clinton, because if you remember in Michigan, uh, a lot of those people were African Americans, and she called them super predators, while gutting welfare, and Bill Clinton at the same time was repealing the New Deal banking legislation, which means the economy cracked within 10 years after him doing that. And who got hurt the most by that, Mike? Black and brown people who played by the rules and went to college. They're the ones who got hurt the worst in this economic downturn, and then Barack Obama kicked them out of their houses. 5.1 million families got kicked out of their houses after the uh, stock market crash, which was directly related to to Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton. And then Barack Obama brought in uh, Timothy Geithner to kick those families out of their houses, He didn't save those families' houses. That was part of how he was gonna fix the banks was by giving those houses to the banks, which is exactly what he did. Yeah, exactly.
1: You you said it all perfectly. You took the
6: words out of my mouth. Yeah, and
1: everything that we've been saying and everything that you just said it was proven right in that particular segment. I mean, not only how the media sucks, because I don't know if you, you caught it before the interview started. Uh, I think it was Stephanie Rule who said, I'm here with my friend, Stephen Klubeck. So I mean, this is yes. someone who, th- it's a colleague of hers, apparently. They've been friends, I don't know for how long. And then he proved us right by basically saying everything that we suspected. That yeah, the party is still beholden to me. And if they, if they choose to go in a different path, then uh, I'm going to punish them for it. Now that I have you on, I couldn't wait to get your opinion on this. So, of course, Doug Jones defeated pedophile Roy Moore in Alabama. And I suspect, and I think you probably agree with this, that the Democratic Party is going to take away all of the wrong conclusions. And we kind of have evidence for this. I want to read you a quote from Joe Manchin here. Um, So he states that this speaks volumes for what we call the radical middle those of us still in the moderate middle centrist democrats and also he uh he encourages doug jones to be an alabama democrat not a washington democrat so is he pretty much just um encouraging him to be a republican what is your thoughts on that because
6: <laughs> it sounds like that There's to me no doubt about it i watched uh, the, the uh, on election night i was watching the chris matthews um his portion of it and he could not stop telling uh, he would bring out a progressive he brought on someone from moveon.org, and then he would say to them, now are you gonna push him, Doug Jones to go to the left? Are you gonna let him vote with the Republicans so he can get reelected? And it's like, oh well, what's God. the point of electing a Democrat, Chris? So immediately Chris Matthews is advocating for someone to move to the right. Of course, and that's why of course, that's why we got Trump again again, and that's why we have shows, Mike, because of how horrible guys like Chris Matthews are, right? Right. And what a just what a you know, a lot of people use the term sellout. But goddammit, it, if those people at MSNBC aren't a hundred percent bought and fucking sold, uh, I, I, I don't. I've never then I've never seen someone who's bought and sold because they are.
1: Do you think that they'll use this as ammunition
6: that yeah they should run as centrists and they shouldn't be more progressive?
1: They're already,
6: they're already doing that. They're <laughs> right. saying it because of. Oh, the Democrats did really well in Virginia, and they did well in Alabama. So maybe it's time we run some more centrists, because a progressive would never win in Alabama. This is the stuff they're saying. And so when Chris Matthews said that to the woman from MoveOn.org, she goes, "He says, are you going to push her to be progressive?" And she says, "Yes." And he said, "Even in Alabama, if you might lose." Uh. And she's, she said, "Yes, we believe." So what she didn't say, which I, I, I what I would have said was, Chris, the reason we advocate for progressive policies isn't because of a personal fetish. We advocate for progressive policies is because they actually make people's lives better and they build a better country. So if you make people's lives better, Chris, They're going to vote for you. What you're saying is you don't believe that progressive policies make people's lives better and you think that those are losers in elections. You're wrong about that. The reason why people uh, don't vote progressive is because of people like you, Chris. Once you go and make the argument, you know, they've done these polls over and over and most of the Americans line up behind progressive policy ideas. That's a fact. Every time they do one of those things, Americans come down on the side of the progressive values. Most people are for Medicare for all. Most people are for free college. 80% of the country was for a public option when Barack Obama was passing his Romneycare. Uh, 90% of the people want some kind of gun legislation after Sandy Diego. So we don't get it. So most of the people are aggressive, but you get people like Chris Matthews and people like Debbie Wasserman Schultz and people like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, and they're going to tell you the exact opposite, that, oh, okay, now that all those black people voted for you in Alabama, it's time to stick the knife in their back and vote against them. That's fucking crazy. I don't know who... That's why the Democrats are wiped out from coast to coast, Mike. That's why we got Donald Trump, because these are the people who are paid by their donors to think this way. Right, and and when... You are basically carried into that
1: seat because 98% of women of color voted for you. To turn around and betray them by voting with Republicans on anything, I think that's egregious. And I I love what uh, Doug Jones said, why he was victorious, was because he's middle of the road. It's not because he's not a pedophile, and Roy Moore is— It's totally because of his, uh, you know, the inspiration and whatnot in his campaign, because like Tom Perez says, uh, when you put hope on the ballot, you win. And apparently that's what happened. But in my mind, the way that I see this is that and I think I alluded to this on my show, but I don't remember when I talked about it. Um, Let's face it. Doug Jones is going to be a one term senator from Alabama If he was up against any other Republican. So try to
6: get as much shit done as you can. So try to get as much progressive shit done as you can, right? Exactly.
1: Go balls to the wall. Vote for Medicare for all. Go fucking crazy because you're going to lose anyway. So why not try something like we've been telling you to try and maybe prove us wrong be extra progressives and and see if you can actually win in a deep red state like alabama i mean it might be difficult to win even if you're progressive but i mean you're gonna lose anyway so the worst case scenario is you lose and accomplish a lot of progressive policies that help the people
6: who helped you get elected people of color poor people what what i don't understand mike is that you and I both know that the majority of Americans are for Medicare for all, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Including a majority of Republicans. So how could advocating that position, which is super progressive, it's more progressive than the Democratic position right now, so how could pushing something like that, which is super progressive, but also super popular, how is that supposed to lose you an election? That that doesn't make any sense. Again, it doesn't make any sense. It's this idea that these people don't like that stuff. But if you look at the polling, the data is, they're for that stuff. The problem is they don't have any money to fucking vote for who's for it. That's the real problem. And so what they're going to get now is a corporate Democrat who's not going to push for Medicare for all, who's not going to push for free college, who's not going to push for a $15 minimum wage, who's not going to push for progressive policies, who's not going to push for ending the wars or or, or uh, cutting the budget for the Pentagon. And ha- He's not going to it And so those people are going to go, well, my life's just as shitty as it was six years ago, so I'm going to vote for the Republican because he hates who I hate. Exactly. And I think that the point
1: that you brought up about Chris Matthews is perfect because, in asking someone from Move On, oh, are you going to still try to make him be progressive or are you going to allow him to vote Republican so he gets reelected? This is why people don't come out and vote for Democrats because they know that regardless of who they vote for, particularly in these red states, I mean, if you look at West Virginia and Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin is a Republican, basically. I mean, I don't know yes. what he's done that even qualifies him as liberal in any way, shape, or form. Um, I mean, I guess he did vote against the GOP tax plan, so not to contradict myself, but that's that's one area. But he goes along with the Republicans. He votes with Trump a majority of the time. So these people aren't going to get out of their houses, wait in lines, try to um, deal with these voter right. suppression tactics to vote for someone who's going to fuck them over a little bit less. That's why people don't vote for Democrats. And I really, I'm just... it frustrates me that they're not going to take away the conclusion that is the correct conclusion. I actually have a friend, Ashley Hudson. She hosts the Establishment Exiles podcast with me. And like the day after Roy Moore won, she sent me a message saying people around uh, her are telling her maybe neoliberals are okay in Alabama and we don't have to pressure them to be progressive. And it's driving her nuts. And it's driving
6: me nuts too. (laughs) uh, How could that not drive you crazy, right? I mean... That's exactly the wrong idea. That's exactly how we got Trump. And so their answer is do more to the stuff that got us Trump. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. And by the way, it was being screamed at the top of Chris Matthews' lung over and over. It wasn't one time he said it. He said it to every person who came on the show. He said, so do you think that they're going to allow him to vote Republican so he can keep his safe? Do you think Chuck Schumer is going to allow him to vote Republican? Do you think? By the way, Chuck Schumer is 100% behind the Republican foreign policy. Right. I don't know if you've seen that, but he he's also for Jerusalem, uh, p- Trump's p- policy on Jerusalem. So there's your resistance. Yeah. yeah, in other words, he's for setting the Middle
1: East on fire and creating chaos at uh, you know, in a in a region of the world that's already incredibly volatile. So to to not and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, because I know you covered the story, um, he encouraged Donald Trump, like he critiqued
6: Donald Trump
1: for not doing this sooner. Is that correct?
6: Yes, he, he wagged his finger at Don, Donald Trump, the word he used for his indecisiveness. That's what Chuck Schumer said, for his indecisiveness about whether to do the Jerusalem move or not. Meaning, do the Jerusalem move, dummy. Don't be as indecisive. That's what Chuck Schumer's uh, counsel was to Donald Trump on this. So, again, the whole world sees that this is a radical move that's going to just cause nothing but violence. And the Democratic leader, 100% for it. You know who else is for it, Mike? Hillary Clinton is for it. You know who else is for it? Barack Obama is for it. So Chuck Schumer, Barack Obama, and Hillary Clinton, doesn't matter who you vote for, you're going to get the same shit, which is exactly what we've been saying. The the problem with the last election, if you voted for one of the two main parties, was there was no way to vote against Goldman Sachs. There was no way to vote against more war. There was no way to vote against Exxon or Big Pharma or Silicon Valley. There was no way to vote against more fracking. So that's what the problem was, Mike. That's why half the country stayed home. That's why we're in the mess we're in. Again, I have to keep saying it. Trump is not the problem; he's a symptom of the problem. People didn't wake up because their lives were going great and decided to vote for a fucking orange clown game show host. <laughs> they did that because he was speaking like a populist, even though they knew it probably wasn't going to happen. They had no other choice, and that's what was told to me on this show by Nick Smith, a cook at a Waffle House in Virginia. He told me that that they knew that Donald Trump was a loudmouth Yankee who supposed who should have gotten his ass kicked. A long time ago, but he said these people here are desperate in cold country. They're desperate for someone to say they were going to make their lives better, and Trump did. Even though they knew he was probably lying, at least they have a little bit of hope. Now they know. So that was the problem. Trump, again, not the problem. He's a symptom of the problem, and the Democrats and the establishment media, meaning CNN, ABC, NBC, NMSNBC, New York Times, Washington Post, are all pretending like the problem started January 25th, 2017 which it didn't exactly and and i feel like what we're
1: asking it's not it's not that much so basically we're just asking for a party that represents us but what the democratic party is in effect is a party that just doesn't go along with all of the shitty things that the republicans do when i see people like dira Tandon have resistance as her twitter icon it drives me fucking nuts because they don't resist trump When it really matters. I mean, she was cheerleading him on when he bombed Syria illegally. Like, I saw her tweet before she blocked me. Mind you, I don't know if you're blocked by her. She cheerleaded him for that. How do you cheerlead him for illegally bombing a country that didn't attack us? And you say, you are resisting.
6: I'm going crazy, Jimmy because Narratandon is not the resistance Narratandon <laughs> is the problem Tandon is a corporatist who's for a lower minimum wage who's for less regulations on Wall Street who's for more war obviously that's so that again there's Tandon doesn't realize hey there's a Republican party you could go be a Republican so she's basically a Republican who's cool with abortion that's what Eric Tanden is, that's what Hillary Clinton is, that's what fucking Bill Clinton was. They're Republicans who are cool with abortion. And by the way, Hillary Clinton not 100% cool with abortion by the way. Right. She was totally open to restricting. She was totally open to restricting abortion. Just so you guys know so it's they're worse than you think again the focus they want you to be focused on donald trump they want you to be focused on russia they want you to be focused on roy moore but what they don't want you focused on is the fact that barack obama opened the arctic drilling twice what they don't want you to focus on is the reason why we have all these fracking pipes underneath the earth right now is because Barack Obama got rid of the regulation that said you couldn't export fossil fuels. That's why they're racing to put all these pipes underneath the earth in the United States that weren't there before. It's not because we want the fracked gas for ourselves. It's because they want to export fracked gas. That's what the Keystone pipe line, uh, oil line is. They want to take oil from Canada, not bring it to the United States, but bring it through the United States so it can get on us. A- ship in the gulf and they can send it to china that's what this is all about it's not about uh, for fossil fuels or energy for the united states and who do we have to thank for that barack obama and who won't tell you about that the fucking mainstream press msnbc will never tell you barack obama opened the drilling arctic to drilling twice but they'll tell you when trump does it they won't tell you that's why there's we have dapple that's why we have all these pipelines is because of barack obama's corporatism and neoliberalism they're not going to tell you the problem joanne Reed will not tell you the problem is neoliberalism she's going to tell you the problem is progressives
1: yeah because we are the ones who are calling out all of these issues and you and i jimmy we've made a lot of friends this year i mean peter dow tom watson stephen klubeck and these are people on the supposed left that they think that we're the problem because in criticizing democrats there's this underlying assumption that we agree with republicans when that's not true at all i mean we are the the loudest voices against their policies that fuck over the middle class and the poor but what we're saying is if we want to defeat these scumbags the democratic party who currently is the main opposition against them has to get their fucking shit together i mean do you agree with that do you see this a lot because i i often get criticized as being not just the russian shill but um basically a republican plants sometimes and whatnot um so what do you say to people that say that that we're being too hard on the democratic party i say that we're not being too hard because we have to be
6: as hard as we can be so they get their shit together quickly well what i tell people is that well when we get rid of trump we have to have something to replace him with and if we don't have something to replace him with we're going to get another trump but it won't be an incompetent trump trump is a good guy to have if you're going to have a right winger in the white house because he shoots himself in the dick three times before <laughs> he gets out of bed right <laughs> so he's, he can't stop tweeting right it's like oh let's see if i can obstruct just <clears throat> I'll shoot myself in the <laughs> dick today, and with the So he can't stop doing that stuff, and that's why uh, I'd rather have Trump as president. You got to have some, as opposed to Mike Pence, not as opposed to anybody else. You got to have something to replace Trump with, otherwise we're going to because. Mike, you know that lots of people predicted that if the Democrats kept going the way they were going, meaning neoliberalism and corporatism, that was going to lead to a rise of a right-wing fascist mm-hmm. demagogue. Well, who said that? Bill Moyer said that. Michael Moore said that. Lots of people said that Chomsky predicted that. Predicted that that would happen. Chris Hedges said that that would happen. So lots of people predicted that would happen. A lot of people smarter than me and been around longer than me. and they saw. And so guess what? That happened. Instead of, we in a sense, we dodged a bullet with Trump because he's such an incompetent maniac and he's so unpopular that he can't get most of his horrible stuff through, which is where we are right now. So that's what I tell people that if we don't have something to replace Trump with that we're just going to get a worse Trump in 2020 or a worse Trump in 2024. That's what you have to remember. You have to have something. If Hillary Clinton was president right now, we would not be talking about the Democrats taking over the House or the Senate. Right. is what we're talking about right now. If Hillary Clinton was president, the Democrats would have been wiped out even harder in that Virginia election and there would have been absolutely no chance for them in Alabama. So, you got to look at it. you got to think. People, I try to tell people, you can't think just one election cycle. You have to think beyond the one election cycle. Because if you only think one election cycle, you get Trump. That's how we got Trump. Well, we're going to do the lesser of two evil. And Mike, not only is this progressive maniacs like me saying this, but guess who else is saying this now? The unions are saying this now, Mike. They had a convention recently. They have a yearly get-together, and they got together. I'm talking the AFL-CIO. I'm talking the teachers' union. I'm talking the uh, uh, SEIU. The biggest union. They got together, and they all agreed that it's time to stop voting Lesser of Two Evils because Lesser of Two Evils has gotten us nothing. Mm -hmm. That's their words, not mine, and they want to start a Labor Party. Wouldn't that be amazing to have a Labor Party? You don't have to think what they're for or who they're against. You know what it's about, the Labor Party, and I think if they did that and Bernie Sanders was the head of it, we could change politics in the United States. But the weird thing that's happening now, Mike, is that Bernie Sanders, who spent 30 years of his life trying to convince people to vote for policies and ideas and not vote for parties, Is ta- and this, instead, when he's gotten all this power, he's the most popular guy in the country, everybody's on his side, instead of using that power to start a viable third party and wipe out the corporatists, he's decided to use all that energy and all that enthusiasm he's gained to sheepdog people into the goddamn Democratic Party and use all of his power to prop up that corrupted two-party system that he has fucking railed against. For 30 years, that doesn't make any goddamn sense to me. Does it make sense to you?
1: Yeah, I think that you're bringing up something that's really important because this kind of goes back to the DNC unity tour that he did that was really mind-boggling to me at first. I know you and I both talked about it. it. It didn't make any sense. And the one way that I've been able to rationalize this you know, with Bernie Sanders, not seemingly getting the hint that Democrats just aren't that into him, is that I think that maybe... He's trying to posture himself to run in 2020. And after that, maybe he goes in a different direction, since I do think he could potentially be the Democratic nominee in 2020 if they don't rig it against him, which, you know, they're probably going to try to pull some type of bullshit. But I think he has enough name recognition to potentially win. So that's the one way that I rationalize it. And I don't know if you agree with that. But basically, I think that we're going to learn a lot more about Bernie Sanders in 2020. And, you know, if he does be become the nominee, then he does get to take control of the DNC. So that's the only way I could think about it. But other than that, it, it it is incredibly frustrating to see him continuously defend the Democratic Party when they don't deserve to be defended. And this comes from progressives like Elizabeth Warren as well, who on TYT with jen she did a spirited defense of Joe Manchin, which made me so angry. Because these are people who are not your allies. You know, they might have a D in front of their name And they might be, you know, a little bit less shitty than Republicans, but they're still doing things that are harmful. So I don't know if you agree with that premise. It's the way that I kind of justify it, but it doesn't necessarily make me feel any better about Bernie Sanders waiting until 2020 to maybe fully, you
6: know, blow the lid off of the party. It's too late. It's too late at that point. He needs to do it now before the midterms, right? So that's what he really needs to do. And that would also pressure the people who are left in the Democratic Party to be more progressive because there's a guy who's actually giving you an alternative. Hey, my God, there's now an alternative to corporate Democrats. It's the most popular guy in the country. They would – so I don't know if you remember, but I'm sure you do. Hillary Clinton was aping his policies by the end, right? Right. Uh, That's true. She was completely aping his policies. And so that's what the corporate Democrats would be forced to do if he was out there putting the pressure on him, except he's not out there putting the pressure on him. He's up. He's out there again, sheepdogging people into the fucking Democratic Party, which is the biggest misuse of the power I could ever imagine. You know, I can see him not wanting to do it in the 2016 election in the general. I could see it was still a mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we got Trump anyway, we got Trump right. anyway. <laughs> so Bernie Sanders had a cha- he had a chance to beat Trump, and he had a chance to change politics in America forever. And he chose. Neither of those things. He chose to prop up a corporatist warmonger, which was a 100% mistake. Why he did it, everybody speculates. I don't know why he did it. But uh, he's, uh, the only reason he gave was because he didn't want to end up like Ralph Nader and be a pariah to the Democrats. Who gives a shit? Those are the fucking people you're supposed to be fighting against anyway, Bernie. So again, I'm this isn't about beating up on Bernie because, you know, thank God for Bernie. And he's flawed like all human beings. And right. uh, he didn't show up when we were in uh, D.C. Uh, for the Draft Bernie convention. And uh, we went to his office and gave him 50,000 signatures. Mm-hmm. He didn't receive those. Cornell West called him out for that. And uh, I support Cornell in calling him out. And so Bernie, again, like, like all human beings, is going to let us down. He yeah. let me down. And so now it's time for me to kind of remind him uh that you're gonna be dead pretty soon anyway and who gives a fuck what the democrats think about you how about let's keep going and actually change politics in america and start a viable third party that represents workers
1: right you know it sounds like you are applying a free market model to democracy which i think is the only area where a free market would work um competition breeds innovation if there were more parties the democratic party the biggest party would, you know, it, it like a giant corporation would be forced to compete because these little guys are going to come up and take their spot. So, yeah, no, I, I agree with you with criticizing Bernie. Whenever I criticize Bernie as well, um, I do get pushback from a lot of progressives, but I think it, the most important thing to remember is that Bernie literally does listen to our criticisms. He might reject us sometimes. I know that Chuck Todd. Um, featured my criticism of bernie sanders in 2016 when i called him out for not campaigning for tim canova and bernie kind of just laughed it off but you know he does
6: yeah so what was that about by the way i never got a straight answer about why he wouldn't endorse tim canova we yeah we basically it's an open question
1: what it seems like was that maybe there was some type of backroom deal between hillary clinton's campaign um and himself maybe for policy concessions to not you know sink debbie wasserman schultz's campaign if she adopted something that he wanted i don't know you know it it seemed really weird and at that point that was probably where i felt the most discouraged about discouraged about politics because if bernie at that point i said if he if he sold out we're fucked because we have literally no one else Who's gonna represent us? So yeah, I, I think it's absolutely important that we do keep pressure on Bernie Sanders as well, because you're right, he's he's not perfect. And the good thing is he's willing to listen to us sometimes, not all not all the time, right? But yeah, that's that's why shows like yours I think are incredibly important because everybody is so because the Republican Party is so bad, everybody's afraid to call out the Democratic Party's flaws when you you can't do that. You have to pull no punches, you have to make sure that people know what's going on and the fact of the matter is that both parties are fucking us and i think that what you're doing is so
6: important jimmy well i appreciate you saying that right back at you thank you you know if it wasn't for if it wasn't for shows like us there would be no nobody out there making holding the democrats feet to the fire nobody i mean even lots of our favorite lefty online news shows don't uh don't do what they should in that regard they're still focusing on trump and they're still focusing on Russia Gate, which um, you know you and I have I think agree is a big mistake. And by yeah. the way, the Russia Gate thing, a hundred percent propaganda. Um, in fact, I don't know if you saw that article which in Politico this week, which I did a video. I haven't dropped it yet, but uh, I'm sure by the time people watch this, I will have dropped it. Uh, Mike Morrell, who used to be uh, the deputy director of the CIA, he was in the CIA for decades, and uh, he did an interview in Politico where he said that. He expects now that there will be no charges of treason or collusion or any of that against Trump. And they asked him why. And he said, Well, think about it. You have every reporter from the Washington Times, New York Post, CNN, everybody in the country is trying to break that story. And they haven't. Plus, they've been investigating him, you know, this thing for over a year. And if Mueller had anything, it would have leaked already. That's mm-hmm. what he said. Mm. He said if they had anything, it wouldn't leak. So the fact that nothing is leaked and nobody in the newspaper—by the way, they keep saying they have stuff in the news media—and then they have to walk it back five minutes later. So um, and then they have to fire people and suspend people, and they just keep. <laughs> and isn't it weird? Michael, isn't it weird that that uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald made this point that when they get the RussiaGate story wrong, it's always wrong in the same way they never get it wrong going the other way it's always wrong in trump collusion is a treasonous they never get it wrong where hey we've debunked the russia gay they never have it that way Mm -hmm. it's only the other way and why is that that's because their sources are all the cia or partisan Democrats on the Intelligence Committee, the sources are all establishment people. That's the narrative they want to have push. In fact, MSNBC's top intelligence reporter has already been outed by The Intercept as being in bed with the CIA, and MSNBC went and hired him anyway. So that's literally happening. The guy who owns the Washington Post is in bed with the CIA, and he sits on a Pentagon board. But the guys at the newspaper, the hacks at the Washington Post, will tell you that that's crazy if you think that influences anything, even though we're living in a neoliberal nightmare and even though somebody at the Washington Post actually did write an article that criticized Jeff Bezos horrible labor practices which we all know how they treat their employees at Amazon and he wrote an article about that and he was disciplined by the Washington Post so you tell me Jeff Bezos doesn't tell his newspaper what to print and if you think that I've got some uh, fucking prime real estate uh, uh, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean I'd like to <laughs> That's just that
1: and you know, I didn't—I'll um, I'll look out for that video when you post it. I didn't see this, but, you know, if if this all does fall through, then the Democratic Party, they've they've got to realize that you can't just attack Trump. You can't be the anti-Trump party. You have to offer a vision. I mean, that's all we're asking for, but nobody can say what they stand for. You, um, you did a great interview with Sally Boynton Brown. She ran to be the DNC oh. chair. She tried to— or you tried to get her to explain what the party stood for, um, and she she couldn't give you anything. It was embarrassing for her, and no disrespect to her. But, I mean, make something up on the spot. She, she just shut down. How, how do you not know what you stand for? If you ask you and I, Jimmy, we can spout off 100 different policies, Medicare for all, net neutrality. I mean, why is it that a simple question can't be answered? It's because, really— they they're a shell of a party they have no core values anymore it's all about the money and i think that what you do in exposing this is really important so i don't want to take up too much of your time so if you could tell us where to find you and where to watch your show and
6: your website and whatnot uh that would be great um let me can i just say one more thing before we you know the reason why the democrats can't say what they're for it's because they've been bought by the people they're supposed to be working against and fighting against, right? It's as if Weight Watchers got bought by Twinkies and everybody's wondering why Weight Watchers keeps telling us to eat cookies. And, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, that's, it's like, why does Weight Watchers want me to eat cakes with cream in the middle? Because they're owned by Twinkies. <laughs> that's so that's the, that's, the exact, that's the exact problem with it. That's why they can't tell you what they're for because they're owned by people who don't want them to be formed for that stuff. So people can find me at jimmydorecomedy.com and uh, that's the great place. So com, And my Twitter is jimmy underscore door, D-O-R-E, jimmy underscore door, com, And we tour the country doing live shows like we did with you in Portland. And uh, we'll be back in Portland coming up early next uh, summer. And hopefully you can do that show with us. Absolutely. I will be there. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's a great note to end with that Twinkie analogy. I'm going to have to borrow
1: that, Jimmy. Of course, I'll credit you. But that is... Just brilliance. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Thanks so much for coming All on right, the Mike, show. Great Take care. Great talking to you. Well, it is now time for the Humanist Report's end of the year award ceremony. So the way this works is we have four categories. We have the badass moment of the year. We have the WTF moment of the year. And then we also name our scumbag of the year and MVP of the year, which is the most prestigious award. So anyone who gets this honor bestowed upon them should truly, um, be very thankful. (laughs) It's really important. Um, so if you have a Nobel Peace Prize, you know, this is more important than that. So move that aside on your shelf and, uh, well, we don't have a trophy, but, um, you know, honor this more than anything, right? So, um... The way it works is I will nominate four individuals or four moments in each of these categories and then I will outsource the vote to the audience. So people on YouTube, Twitter, and Patreon will vote and decide which moment is their favorite or worst to them. So when it comes to our first award, this is the award for badass moment of the year and my first nomination is Bernie Sanders Medicare for All launch. So, I nominated this moment here as the badass moment of the year because we've been pushing for this forever and finally one politician decided to come out and do what the American people has been wanting introduce a bill that would create a medicare for all system now this is significant because a majority of the public now supports medicare for all so the time to act is now and additionally when bernie sanders introduced this legislation it immediately garnered 16 co-sponsors so this is a really big deal and i couldn't not nominate this as a badass moment of the year but of course another moment that is on everyone's radar is the dnc speech we saw numiki khan's to give at the dnc unity reform commission where she absolutely lambasted the dnc for their lack of transparency, and was ruthless. She said everything we wanted her to say. She spoke out on behalf of progressives, and I am incredibly thankful to her for that.
5: We're talking about close to 700 to $800 million between the joint fundraising agreement and the DNC being spent on five consultants. Uh-oh. This is not what a you- public outrage issue. The DNC chairs are upset. The officers are upset. And I don't know who's on the budget and finance committee. I did go to the meeting. It was 15 minutes long and there was a pie chart that was was put on screen. But I would, as a Democratic Party member of this commission, we have a duty and people are watching us right now. The number one issue I get asked out in the public by DNC members is what are you going to do about the budget? It is absolutely ridiculous that we are going to keep a status quo system when it basically says we're going to continue to lose 1,200 seats. Let me describe what losing 1,200 seats looks like, or the remaining seats we have. If you're in Arizona, Trump, yes, but let's break that down a little bit. If you're in Arizona and you have an ectopic pr- pregnancy, pregnancy, you can't go to a Planned Parenthood clinic because it's gone, because that state legislature is lost. So you have to drive over to New Mexico. And if you bleed to death on the way, you know whose fault that is? In my mind? That's a Democratic Party that wasn't funded, recruiting candidates, investing in, in, in local parties, and that is our fault because we have put that money to the top five consultants, and part of that has to go to the conflicts of interests. This is outrageous. It's unethical. It's bad governance, and frankly, it's fucking—excuse me—corruption.
1: Another moment that I decided to nominate was the Yes Men and their decision to troll the DNC at Politicon. So what they did is they set up a fake event where they claimed to be part of the DNC and one of them acted as an official to the DNC and they did what the DNC should have done long ago. They said they're coming out in favor of universal basic income, Medicare for all, and they're going to start actually representing the people. Now, of course, this put the DNC in a really awkward position to where they actually had to say that they did not endorse these widely popular policies. Now, the DNC just ignored them, but that is typically the effect that the yes men had. And the fact that they did this to the DNC was great. The Democratic Party is going to serve the people, once again, by fighting for what people need and want and that therefore win elections.
3: And to begin doing that, we're going to aim to outlaw corporate lobbying in government and we're going to fight for the public financing of elections. That's what the DNC take-back is all about, because better just isn't good enough.
1: Now, for my last nomination, I chose Sam Ronan's DNC speech, where basically he called out his opponents in the DNC tier race for copying him because he really influenced that discussion he talked about how the democratic party needed to be more transparent and equitable and how they rigged the primary and all of a sudden the other candidates were doing the same thing and saying the same things as sam ronan
8: so i'm gonna take the gloves off a little bit you talked about truth to power i was the one that started that in houston you want to talk about telling people that the dnc is the only people who get to decide the fate and future of millions of americans i believe you said Each of you get to carry the weight and burden of 150,000 lives. That is an awesome responsibility. And it's one that goes and alludes to the superdelegates. Let's take that word, for example, superdelegates. It is greater than a regular delegate. That means that those superdelegates, I believe it was around 500 of them, had the same weight as 25% of the entire voting base, millions of votes. That is undemocratic. You want to talk about truth to power? I am the only candidate at this table who has sworn to not take corporate and lobbyist money, that that is not the way we do business in the Democratic Party. You want to talk about more truth to power? We need open primaries. We need open debates. We need to get rid of exclusivity. I've been hashing off every time somebody at this table has borrowed from my Houston and my Detroit and my Phoenix remarks and my interviews. Uh, Tom, I think, has adopted my policies. You want to talk about leadership? That is leadership. Leading by example.
1: So, with that being said, you guys voted, now let's get to the results. So on Twitter, with 467 total votes, the winner of my Twitter audience's badass moment of the year is Numiki Konst's DNC speech. And in second place, we have Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All launch. In third place, we have the Yes Men. And in fourth place, we have Sam Ronan's DNC speech. Now on Patreon, with 61 total votes, the winner here... Is Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All launch? So we have a little bit of disagreement with the audience here. And in second place, now we have Namiki's DNC speech. In third place, we have the Yes Men. And in fourth place, with 8% of the vote, we have Sam Ronan's DNC speech. And now, for probably the most important poll on YouTube, with 13,000 total votes, the winner by a landslide is Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All launch. So, Yes Men came in uh, second. Namiki Konst's DNC speech came in third. And we have Sam Ronan in fourth place again. So, when you look at the overall votes, by far, the winner is Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All launch. So, that is officially the Humanist Report's badass moment of 2017. And I couldn't agree more... This was really important to me when i watched this speech it brought tears to my eyes i was personally touched by it um it was definitely badass and in a year that overall politically was pretty shitty <laughs> this was a, this was the moment that we needed as progressive so um it was absolutely the right choice uh, i agree with the audience here
2: it's an enormous honor to stand with each of you to say never again in America does anyone go bankrupt just because they got sick, never. Yeah. This has been a long fight from Franklin Roosevelt who wanted health care for all as part of social security to Lyndon Johnson who gave us both Medicare and Medicaid to Ted Kennedy. Who made sure that our children were insured with CHIP, and to Barack Obama, who helped build the game changer that gave millions of Americans who didn't have health care coverage new health care coverage. We are here today to take another step. We will not back down in our protection of the Affordable Care Act. We will defend it at every turn. But we will go further and we will say that in this country, everyone, everyone gets a right to basic health care. That's what Medicare for All is all about. And that's why we're here. I want to say thank you to Bernie for all that you have done. I am honored to be part of this fight. I am honored to have a chance to stand up and say one more time healthcare is a basic human right and we fight for basic human rights. Thank you. Guys. So in
1: 2017, there were a lot of WTF moments that either disturbed me, depressed me, or had me scratching my head thinking what is wrong with our country now i nominated four and these are the four i chose first up is the charlottesville white supremacist march where we had alt-right slash clan members slash nazis neo-nazis literally chanting blood and soil in the streets Now, my second nomination is the FCC's repeal of net neutrality. This is obviously a WTF moment because 83% of the American people did not want the FCC to do this, and we did everything we possibly could to stop the FCC, but they did it anyway.
3: The chair votes aye. The item is adopted with editorial privileges granted as requested. Thanks to the staff for your terrific work on this item.
1: Now, my next nomination is Donald Trump's presidency. I know this is incredibly broad, but I Couldn't narrow it down to just one moment. Donald Trump has done so many crazy things this year that I can't not just put his whole presidency up for a vote. I mean, he withdrew from the Paris Climate Accord. He decided to end DACA. He expedited the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline and Dakota Access pipelines. He tried to strip millions of Americans away from their health insurance. He pushed for a tax reform plan that robs the poor to pay for tax cuts to himself and his family. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on. He signed a bill into law that strips Americans of their online privacy rights and allows private companies to sell our information without our consent. He expanded the drone war. He illegally and unconstitutionally bombed Syria. I mean, the way he's acted as president. His tweets with Kim Jong-un attacking members of his own party. I mean, I could go on all day. This guy is a lunatic. So, of course, his whole presidency has been a WTF moment. So, of course, I nominated him there. And finally, my last nomination is Donna Brazil's bombshell, where she, out of the blue— decided to blow the lid off of the DNC's corruption and let us know about a joint fundraising agreement that Hillary Clinton signed with the DNC back in 2015 before she won the nomination that allowed her to take full control of the DNC, thus rigging the primary against Bernie Sanders. So I made my nominations and you guys voted. So this is how the vote turned out. When it comes to Twitter, with a total of 968 votes, Donald Trump's presidency was absolutely the biggest WTF moment of the year with 40% of the vote. And in second was the repeal of net neutrality with 30% of the vote. In third place was the Charlottesville March with 20% of the vote. And with 10% of the vote was Donna Brazil's bombshell. Now on Patreon, with 64 total votes... The winner here was the repeal of net neutrality, biggest WTF moment for Patreon patrons. In second place was Donald Trump's presidency. In third place was Donna Brazil's bombshell. And in fourth place was the Charlottesville March. And on YouTube, with the biggest vote total of 39,000 total votes by far, you guys thought that the repeal of net neutrality was the biggest WTF moment of the year with 78%. And in third, in second, excuse me, is Donald Trump's presidency. And in third is the Charlottesville march. And in fourth place is Donna Brazil's bombshell. So when you look at the overall results, since there were more votes from the YouTube audience, it is clear that by far the repeal of net neutrality is the biggest WTF moment for you guys. And honestly, all of these moments were pretty equal to me. The repeal of net neutrality was not surprising. Donald Trump's presidency was continuously mind boggling down in Brazil's bombshell came out of the blue um, and then the Charlottesville March really opened my eyes to just how effed up our country really is so I mean there was a lot so I, I don't really have an opinion so um, I guess I'll side with the audience here so there you have it the biggest WTF moment of 2017 thank you
3: thank you Commissioner Clyburn I'm going to mark you down as a no so
7: that's it a- <laughs> <Okay. laughs>
1: It is now time to award one individual with the Humanist Report's Scumbag of the Year title, and more so than any other year, we got more votes in this category than any other category. You guys definitely were enthusiastic about naming someone a scumbag because there were a lot of scumbags, so I nominated four individuals for this title. First, of course, is Ajit Pai. I don't think I need to explain to you why Ajit Pai is nominated to be the Scumbag of the Year. He spearheaded this effort to repeal net neutrality, and he did this at the behest of ISPs against the overwhelming majority of the American people. If that doesn't tell you how much of a scumbag he is, then nothing will. I also nominated Donald Trump for being one of the shittiest presidents in recent history. I don't necessarily think that he reached George Bush levels just yet, but he's still a terrible president that is ruining the country. Now, I also nominated Roar Moore because he is a pedophile and he was running for Congress. And if being a pedophile wasn't bad enough, politically, he's just a lunatic. He is literally a Christian theocrat and he does not belong in U.S. politics. And finally, I nominated Anthony Rendon, who decided to unilaterally block California's single-payer health care bill. Now, because he decided to block this bill, California is not able to even discuss Medicare for All. And as a result, people will die waiting for them to start talking about this bill again. I mean, every minute that we don't have Medicare for All, Americans are at risk. And this asshole decided to unilaterally kill an initiative that he claimed to support So, of course, that is a scumbag move. Now, let's get to the results because you guys are anxious for this. So, when it comes to Twitter with 1.7 thousand votes, I mean, it was no contest. Ajit Pai was clearly the biggest scumbag in your guys' opinion with 55% of the vote. Trump came in second with 32%, Roy Moore in third with 10%, and Anthony Rendon with 3% of the vote. And when we asked our Patreon audience with 68 total votes... Again, no contest. Ajit Pai won hands down with 59% of the vote. Trump came in second with 25% of the vote. Roy Moore came in third with 15% and Anthony Rendon got lucky and got away with 1% of the vote. And the YouTube audience made their voices absolutely crystal clear with 60,000 total votes. Ajit Pai won scumbag of the year by a gigantic margin. He won with 90% of the votes. So our YouTube audience clearly hates Ajit Pai, and Donald Trump, in a very, very, very distant second with 8%, Roy Moore with 2%, Anthony Rendon with 0%. So when you look at the overall results here, Ajit Pai is clearly the biggest scumbag of 2017, according to the Humanist Reports audience. I mean, it's no contest. This guy won hands down. So here, I couldn't agree more. The audience got it right. I was hoping he would win because he deserves it. So congratulations, Ajit Pai, I guess. You are The Humanist Report's biggest scumbag of the year and also the biggest asshole and most hated man in America. Ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for the most prestigious award we offer here at The Humanist Report. We will now crown our MVP of 2017. This is a very prestigious award that only one person has won before, and that individual is Bernie Sanders. He won in 2015 and 2016, and he's nominated again. So, I nominated Bernie Sanders because... Not only did he introduce Medicare for All, but he is one of the few politicians that is continuously not only calling out Republican bullshit and holding them accountable in a way that no other Democrat is doing, but he's also still fighting for us. Is he perfect? Absolutely not. But to be the one politician in a corrupt Congress that actually looks out for us, I couldn't not nominate him. Now, my second nominee is Amy Valela, because she is just a huge source of inspiration for me. I mean, she, she lost her daughter and she decided that she was going to do something to make sure that nobody else dies because they don't have health insurance or can't prove that they have health insurance. So she decided to challenge her congressman and get him to uh, support Medicare for All. He didn't, so she decided to primary him. And she may very well be elected to Congress next year. So her story is not just poignant and touching It really inspires me. And now she's fighting for all of us. So I couldn't not nominate her. And of course, Nina Turner. She's the president of our revolution. And she is one of the leading voices in this country for progressives. She is our voice and she is consistently on our side. She's on the right side of every issue. And... I mean, we all love Nina Turner. I mean, progressives disagree on certain things, but I think the one thing we are unanimous in our agreement on is our love for Nina Turner. Not only because she can get us fired up with a rousing speech, but because she genuinely cares. So, of course, that's why I nominated her. And finally, I decided to nominate Jessica Rosenworcel, who is an FCC commissioner that has spoken out on behalf of net neutrality activists. Now, I kind of debated with myself about whether or not I should nominate her or Minyon Clyburn just because Minion did such a phenomenal job making the case for net neutrality before the FCC's vote. However, she waited to speak out in favor of net neutrality a little bit too long, and since Jessica Rosenworcel was vocal from the beginning, I decided to nominate her. Now it is time to get to the votes. So on Twitter, with a total of 813 votes, It wasn't even a contest. Bernie Sanders won by a landslide with 75% of the vote. Nina Turner came in second with 17%. Jessica Rosenworcel came in third with 5%. And Amy Vallela came in third with 3%. And when it comes to Patreon, with 62 total votes, it was another landslide. Bernie Sanders won with 65% of the vote. Nina Turner came in second with 18%. Amy Valela was a close third with 13%, and Jessica Rosenworcel came in fourth place with 5% of the vote, and on YouTube with a total of 17,000 votes. It was another landslide. Bernie Sanders won with 82% of the vote. Jessica Rosenworcel came in a distant second place with 12%, Nina Turner with a distant third, 4%, and Amy Valela coming in fourth with 2% of the vote. So when you look at the overall results, the Humanist Reports audience obviously chose Bernie Sanders. And for good reason. He is the leader of this progressive movement. He is the de facto leader of the Democratic Party. And if he keeps this up, he could very well be the next president of the United States. So um, I think this is a great decision. My personal choice, I was really conflicted on this. It was, for me, a tie between Bernie Sanders and Amy Valela. But nonetheless, the audience spoke and Bernie Sanders is the MVP of the year. So congratulations, Bernie Sanders. You've won this award now three times in a row. Three times in a row. So what that tells me is that somebody's got to step up and dethrone Bernie Sanders, be a new progressive leader. So that could be you. Who knows? So um, anyways, that concludes the end of the year award ceremony at the Humanist Report. Um, This was a blast. I'm glad you guys participated. Um, Record numbers, by the way. We've never gotten this many votes for our end-of-the-year award ceremony, and in part, this is because we opened it up to Patreon patrons to vote and YouTube to vote. So, look, I enjoyed this. I hope you guys enjoyed this, but clearly you guys were more enthusiastic about crowning a scumbag of the year, and I'm with you. This was that type of year, but for now, we have a good MVP, we have a good scumbag, the perfect scumbag of the year, and I think you guys did a great job choosing.
3: point with those beautiful fingers. We can do this together.
1: Well, that's all I got for you guys today. I've been talking for about 30 hours, it feels like. (laughs) So I'm definitely ready to uh, take a break and rest my throat. So if you've listened to me talk for this long, thank you so much because you are truly a trooper and you care about policy. And as usual, I want to send a huge thank you to all of our Patreon patrons and PayPal contributors. You guys help the show not just survive, but thrive as well. So you guys are amazing. And as we move into 2018... I want to leave you with the recap of 2017. This is a video compilation I put together for Humanist Report viewers to basically talk about some, not all, of the biggest headlines that took place this year. Um, And in 2018, we're going to go into that year hitting the ground running and being prepared to fight for the issues we care about. That means net neutrality and Medicare for all. But for now, I leave you with our recap of 2017. I'll see you guys next year. Republicans are currently in hot water after attempting to quietly gut the Office of Congressional Ethics. Let's look at the person who Cory Booker really is. Booker voted against an affordable drug proposal from Senators Amy Klobuchar and Senator Bernie Sanders. So we thought he would get away with this, but he's not getting away with this. And basically, he's been publicly crucified. And I think that It's apparent that he knows his career is now over. President Obama has commuted the majority of Chelsea Manning's sentence. Progressive activism is actually really starting to get to congressional Republicans. Donald Trump has been the president now for just a week, and he's already proving that he is a complete disaster. Keystone Pipeline. The Dakota Access Pipeline any regulations initiated unilaterally by President Obama that were in the process of being implemented have been frozen until Donald Trump's administration reviews them. He's prohibiting federal dollars from going to international organizations that provide abortions or information about abortion. President Trump has banned employees of the Environmental Protection Agency from giving social media updates and speaking with reporters.
8: Secretary, would you condemn the home demolitions by Benjamin Netanyahu? Uh, Secretary, do do you also
7: condemn the expansion of
1: settlements? The Young Turks and Kyle Kulinski of Secular Talk have teamed up with veterans of Bernie Sanders' campaign to launch a new initiative to take over the Democratic Party once and for all. President Trump issued an executive order which bans Syrian refugees from entering the country. It led to nationwide protests at airports across the country as citizens from these countries were detained. He literally has the worst approval rating of any new president since we started keeping Track of approval ratings 60 years ago. It would bring back waterboarding and a hell of a lot worse. I would do
0: what I would do. I want to keep our
1: country safe. President Trump has made Ajit Pai the new chairman of the FCC. Now, Ajit Pai is a Republican that served on the FCC for five years. And I'm talking about this individual because he poses a severe threat to the internet as we know it. Because Ajit Pai is someone who is vehemently against net neutrality.
4: I'll sit down and shut up like Elizabeth Warren. Do I deny climate
2: change? No, the climate changes all the time. People can't afford to get insurance. Shame on you!
7: Shame on you!
1: Donald Trump's team is reportedly conducting meetings in the dark because they aren't able to locate the correct light switches in the White House. His administration is attacking everyone that speaks out against Trump and calls it fake news because they believe it's quote, wrong to attack the president. So he states there's nobody better to tell me about Dodd-Frank than JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon. Donald Trump denounced a treaty that caps US and Russian deployment of nuclear warheads as a bad deal for the United States.
8: Rather than getting that new iPhone that they just love and they want to go spend hundreds of dollars on that, maybe they should invest it in their own healthcare. So many of those people that are disenfranchised thought the primaries were rigged against them and their candidates and the fact of the matter is it's true
7: it is my honor now to present to gavel the next chair of the democratic national committee to mr tom perez mr perez
1: congratulations the republican party is so shameless in their corruption they literally made it legal for verizon and comcast and at&t to sell door internet browsing history Without your consent. So, I wanted to do a video talking about the YouTube ad revenue crisis. Bernie Sanders will be going on a unity tour with DNC chairman Tom Perez. We passed one. Hundred thousand subscribers. It just seems like they've thrown this whole notion of resistance out the window ever since Donald Trump decided to illegally and unconstitutionally bomb Syria. House Republicans voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act and replace it with the American Health Care Act, which would allow insurance companies to discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions, and it also guts Medicaid and it ensures that the wealthy get a huge tax break. We speculated as to whether or not Donald Trump's abrupt decision to fire FBI Director James Comey had anything to do with him possibly trying to obstruct justice. And now that we have the Comey memo, it seems as though that's definitely the case. Go
0: fuck yourselves with a locally grown organic cucumber.
1: The Guardian's Ben Jacobs tweeted out, Greg Gianforte just body slammed me and broke my glasses. The California Senate just voted to pass a single-payer Medicare for all bill. One individual in California unilaterally decided to kill their single-payer bill. Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon decided to shelve the proposal. The United States will withdraw from the Paris climate accord i do not support a livable wage now as you all know july 12th is the internet-wide day of action to protest the fcc's decision to roll back net neutrality regulations democrats 2018 i mean have you seen the other guys i literally thought that this was satirical But i want you to tell the american people why you think it is a good idea to
0: give three trillion dollars in tax breaks to the top one percent at a time when the rich are becoming much richer, while at the same time you're gonna throw 17 million children in this country off of health insurance because of the
1: unconscionable cuts that you are making to medicaid some of the largest companies on the internet such as amazon reddit netflix pornhub among others they all came together to send a message to the fcc leave net neutrality in place leave the internet alone we don't want you messing with the current net neutrality regulations protesters from the protect our internet campaign went around pi's neighborhood in Arlington, Virginia and distributed door hangers at nearby homes, prompting people to be aware of their neighbors' efforts to limit internet freedom. The Democratic Party's donors have already coalesced around Kamala Harris and they want her to be the Democratic Party's presidential nominee in 2020. President Donald Trump has offered a simple explanation for his wealthy cabinet choices. Rich people know how to manage money better than poor people do. We have another instance when a so-called Family Values Republican was outed as a gigantic hypocrite. Medicare for All got an unlikely ally recently. That individual is Kamala Harris. In moving up California's primary, this gives a huge advantage to candidates from California, specifically Kamala Harris, who currently is the establishment's favorite pick. For 2020, since early 2015, there's been allegations against Jane Sanders that during her tenure as the president of Burlington College in Vermont, she committed bank fraud by supplying a bank with misleading information on a loan application. And we know what his intentions are. He's trying to cripple Bernie Sanders ahead of the 2020 election. I've said it once, I'll say it again. This is a political witch hunt. North Korea conducted two tests of intercontinental ballistic missiles, and in response to these new sanctions... Kim Jong-un threatened to retaliate against the United States.
3: They will be met with fire and fury.
1: The deadliest terror attack to ever occur in the country of Somalia. We had the worst mass shooting in the history of our country. One of my viewers named Anissa submitted two comments to the FCC. The first one was submitted on May 13th and she strongly encouraged the FCC to support net neutrality. But yet on may 11th anisa realized that a phony comment was submitted on her behalf using a fake address and this comment is against net neutrality nearly 13 million more than ever before and most of them tell ajit pai to leave the internet alone he lost by nearly four points
0: also had people that were very fine people on both sides. What about the alt-left that came charging at the, as you say, the alt-right?
1: So when you put aside the fact that he is under investigation by the FBI for numerous reasons, he also is losing support. Ted Cruz decided to uh, like a specific tweet on um, Twitter that some of us might consider Hardcore pornography. I wanted to take a moment to reflect on Hurricane Harvey. He could have been housing a lot of people who lost their homes due to all the flooding that Hurricane Harvey caused, but he basically offered to just pray for them instead. He may actually be preparing to invade or bomb North Korea. Would it be
0: nice not to do that?
1: The answer is yes. Will
0: that happen who knows
8: all 40 state parks are closed
1: governor chris christie who had island beach state park all to himself this holiday weekend
0: the alleged shooter at the republican baseball practice this morning is someone who apparently
1: volunteered on my presidential campaign. In spite of Bernie Sanders' condemnation of the violence, in spite of my repeated condemnation of the violence, and in spite of the fact that 99.9% of Bernie Sanders supporters are tree-hugging hippie pacifists, myself included, we were still blamed for this nonetheless because The shooter was a Bernie Sanders volunteer at one point in time. We learned that there will be no justice for Philando Castile when we found out that his murderer, Officer Yanez, was acquitted on manslaughter charges. One of the yes-men posed as a DNC representative that was responding to criticism about the Democratic Party's recently announced Better Deal platform. We actually did find someone to primary Ruben Keown, and that individual is the very mother, Amy Valela, who we looked in the face... And said no to. They're going to presumably vote to kill net neutrality when the least amount of people will be paying attention. Fucking up the holidays for everyone. Thank you, Ajit Pai. I reported that Donald Trump was contemplating whether or not he would be ending an Obama era program known as DACA. And early this week, unfortunately, we got confirmation that he would, in fact, Be phasing out the program we need to make dreamers and these haitians citizens the republican party's obamacare repeal and replacement bill is back yet again for what is now probably the 100th time this year i think months of post-election malaise hamstrung the democratic national committee's fundraising over the first six months of 2017. president donald trump recently announced that since he's unable to get it done through congress he would be unilaterally dismantling the Affordable Care Act via executive order. Bernie Sanders finally unveiled his highly anticipated Medicare for All bill, and it actually immediately received quite a bit of support among Senate Democrats. Actually, 16 co-sponsors to be exact. There's a bill in Congress, H.R. 676. Um, this would expand Medicare to everyone. Would you co-sponsor that if you were elected and support a single-payer health care system? Yes,
4: I I probably would have sponsored it.
6: Absolutely.
4: Absolutely.
6: Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think I'll be able to get there um, quick enough
5: to co-sponsor. <laughs> I mean, I'll ask if I can fax it over, maybe. Fellow
1: Americans in Puerto Rico are currently facing mass destruction and devastation after Hurricane Maria almost completely wiped out their electrical grid, leaving most of Puerto Rico's 3.4 million residents with no electricity. Donna Brazile, former DNC interim chair, she basically gave us an inside account as to how the DNC and Hillary Clinton rigged the primary against Bernie Sanders. We had an announcement from the FCC which stated their intent to fully repeal Title II net neutrality regulations. And this will most likely be voted on on December 14th, conspicuously during the holiday season when you'll be spending time with your family. But he looks like a real life version of Eric Cartman from South Park, does he not? Exactly. And he acts like him, too.
0: It's the largest tax decrease in the history of our country by far.
1: Roy Moore lost. I am completely surprised. The FCC has just voted in a 3-2 to vote to repeal Title II net neutrality protections. With that, we will call the vote Commissioner Clyburn. I dissent. Commissioner O'Reilly. Aye. Commissioner Carr.
3: Aye. Commissioner Rosenworcel. I dissent. The chair votes aye. The item is adopted with editorial privileges granted as requested. Thanks to the staff for your terrific work on this item.
1: But even though we lost the battle, the war isn't over because now one of two things will most likely happen. Either this will be challenged in the courts or Congress will step up and get involved to protect net neutrality. Now, one congressman did just that.